Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOT. And almost bonked myself in the face with my mic just now, just being so emphatic, getting ready to talk about propping you up with my guy, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter, and we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 59. We got a big light heavyweight fight in the main event between Jamal Hill and uh, Tiago Santos. This will truly tell us if Jamal Hill has what it takes to go out there and be in title contention, because beating a guy like Tiago Santos will likely get him just that. But before we get into anything, apparently I was in the dark about this, Cody, but Apparently you're about to be a father. Is that is that correct? Or yeah, that's right. That's right. Baby on the way. Uh, late September. So it's like yeah, not far away. But uh, congratulations, yeah, my friend. I, I had no idea about that. Did, didn't hear about it. But happy that uh, my guy Papa Chuck brought it up in the uh, the comment section here. Very happy to hear that. Congratulations to you and your wife. And can't wait to see a little Cody or Codette running around. Do you guys know the gender yet or what? Yeah, I think she wants to keep that a secret till okay, it's born. That's why, but, uh, that's why yeah, I'm no, I mean, listen, I'm not really one to talk about like my private life online and stuff like that. So it's not as if I was like, oh, check it out. I got a baby on the way. But yeah, I mean, listen, you're getting older and been doing the show for a long time and starting to reap the, the benefits a little bit. And uh, it's time to like progress in like other avenues more than just career. So yeah, getting yeah. married, having a kid, getting a house and just trying to do like that adult life stuff. But uh, that all that stuff mostly made possible if you can hit some killer fucking picks. So, of course, always happy to be joined. And uh, I'm honestly going to keep things short today because I want to do a PFL preview after this. And I know we're running late a little bit. But, uh, yeah, between both of them, hopefully this could be a nice, fun, profitable weekend. Absolutely. And uh, I'll just quickly say this just as a quick recap of uh, last week. Uh, fuck Dontel Mays, right? Like, are we on that? Are we all on that train? Is, is that what's happening here? <laughs> Dude, did you see how close we were? We were going to absolutely blow the titties off the place. And then, yeah, Dante Mays, uh, unfortunately, came in with a very poor game plan and for, yeah. fight in poor form. And that's kind of one thing you got to expect when you're picking guys that are a little bit lower level, like at least when it's a higher up echelon talent, maybe they're going to go for it. I knew it was two bum heavyweights. I did it to myself. I have no one to blame. But if I did have someone to blame, it'd be Dante Mays. God damn it. <laughs> so why can you? Exactly. All right. Let's just quickly go over the club uh, props from last week so we can start on this UFC Vegas 59 card. Uh, so we had the UFC 277 debutante wins. And unfortunately, the aforementioned Dante Mays blows the spots here. And he actually allows Abdel Wahab to cash the one debutante win there at plus 104. Obviously, you'd be getting much better numbers if you bet him straight up. But at least this prop gave you the opportunity to choose between the through between those three guys without actually bad, betting specifically one of those three guys. So shout out to anybody that cashed that one at plus 104. Fight of the night. Uh, odds makers were on the ball here with Brandon Moreno and Kai Carfrance at plus 600. Uh, that catches, you know, that was a very fun fight. Uh, seeing that uh, play out, shout out to Brandon Moreno going out there and capturing that interim flyweight gold. Main card takedowns under nine and a half hits here, as we only had eight takedowns. Six of those come in from the quote Amanda Nunes. She goes out there and just puts on a great performance against Juliana Pena to recapture her title. Total uh, main card completed rounds was also eight. Uh, Uncle I have getting Smith out of there early. Uh, we had a couple other big ones as well in terms of quick finishes. Uh, 
But uh, I think me and Cody were going with the over 12 and a half there because we expected both the, the women's and the, sorry, both title fights to go at least the five full rounds. Moreno was like, nah, I'm only going to give you guys two rounds because I got to get this guy out of here. Uh, so the under 12 and a half cashes there at minus 12, uh, minus 125. And then lastly, uh, odds makers again, once on the ball here, once again on the ball here, the total takedowns for the entire card was set at 25 and a half. The under hits by the hook here at minus 122 we there was uh 25 completed takedowns on the entire card so shout out to the bookmakers in terms of being very sharp with that line there and shout out to anybody that actually cashed on the under as well all right let's not waste any more time here cody let's get right into the breakdowns for this show the first fight that we got coming up on this uh, UFC Vegas 59 card has us starting off in the women's bantamweight division. We're going to be looking at Myra Bueno Silva and Stephanie Egger <coughs> going up against one another. This is one of those fights that we saw the line movement really come into play, right? We saw Stephanie Egger initially open up around that plus 130 mark. A lot of money coming in of, on her over the last couple of days. Now she's actually the minus 125 favorite. Plus 105 is actually the return on Myra Bueno Silva. Now, I got in on Stephanie Egger around that minus 113 mark. You know, missed out on the plus money, but was still happy to take a little bit of that favorite money here on Egger as I believe, you know, she'll showcase the much better all-around game. Uh, Myra Bueno Silva, you know, she's a little bit lackadaisical in terms of her output and her uh, ability to put volume out there but she can kind of back that up with the amount of power she's able to hit her opponents with as we saw in that Yunnan Wu fight where she was able to drop her on numerous occasions uh, and, and really make that fight look like uh, you know she was well I don't think she looked a minus 500 which she was in that fight it was a little bit closer than it should have been but it was those big moments that truly set her apart from Yunnan Wu in that fight uh, she does have some decent jiu-jitsu off her back we saw her snatch up a couple of uh, submissions there uh, in a couple UFC fights. The Mara Romero Barella fight is the one that comes to mind there. Um, but I think she's going to be out grappled here by uh, by Stephanie Yeager, who, you know, solid judo background. We've seen her get uh, opponents to the ground and have tremendous success from on top. She has crushing top uh, power as well, which I think is going to be very important for her here. And as long as she doesn't get caught in one of those submission opportunities for Myra Bueno, I do think that we'll see Egger, um, you know, either grind this out from on top or I could absolutely see a, a world where she's able to posture up and start raining down big shots, similar to what she was able to do against Shanna Young. But Shanna Young, Myra Boynesova, completely different worlds in terms of skill level. So it's going to take a little bit of uh, courage and, and legit confidence from the Egger side to be able to get that finish. But at plus 800 for the TKO, you know, I know she's going to have that ground dominance. I know she's going to be able to get this down with uh, relative ease. And then from there, I think she should be able to get some solid work done. So I'm going to sprinkle that plus 800 egger by TKO, not putting all my eggs in that basket, but truly think that's where she can get it done. What do you think about this one, Cody? Yeah, take the plus 250 Muera Buena Silva by decision. Again, this is not something mm -hmm. I'm super confident in, but I would go the other side on it. You got striker versus grappler. I think we all know that Egger's the better grappler. She's a you know prolific judoka, European level uh, black belt now. Yeah, she gets into the clinch and she's able to toss her on the ground. She'll definitely have some success with her top game. Big, strong, physical. If she does not get this fight to the ground, her striking's a liability. It's very robotic. It's very stiff. It's not very comfortable. You mentioned with Mara Buena Silva, Sometimes she's very lackadaisical with her output. I think she's got fine output. The times that she doesn't put up numbers is when she's either taking on a wrestler or she's taking on an evasive opponent. When you look at her in the Menno Fioro fight, Fioro moves very laterally, very well. She's kind of like a Holly Holmer or Kayla Jukagan. She's very evasive. 
Montel De La Rosa took her down three times, and Marina Moroz took her down twice. But even in the Moroz fight, she landed 88 significant strikes. She put up a couple good. She put up decent numbers against Yan Wenu or uh, Yu Wenan. She's got like that classic, you know, shoot to box style, flat footed, plods forward, and throws bombs. You know, technical fighters will be able to move to the outside and have their way with her. But someone like uh, Stephanie Edgar, I think, will get probably defeated in a striking battle. So it's up to her to get the clinch going. And my only my only problem is against Shayna Young and Jesse Jestrose Clark, both of them initiated the clinch and then hung out way too long in that position. Whereas if uh, you get an opponent that just try to pushes you away, bullies you around, and lands those bigger, more eye-appealing shots, could go her favor. So, yeah, listen, I normally take the grappler in these striker versus grappler situations. I just got a feel, feeling that uh, Marina Bueno Silva has actually fought much better level of competition, is actually BJJ Black Belt as well. It's decent enough off her back. Even if she gets taken down early, she will survive in that position, but she's got to work her way back up and outlander. That's kind of what I'm leaning towards. So uh, give me the by decision 250 for Silva. I like it. There we go. We already, uh, oh, sorry, plus 250, I think you're saying. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. already, already uh, dissension in the first fight of the night. I love it to see that as well. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got another women's weight, women's fight. We got a straw weight bout between Corey McKenna and Miranda Granger in terms of odds. We're currently looking at minus 210 now on Corey McKenna, plus 180 the return on Miranda Granger. Uh, McKenna was closer to that plus two, or sorry, minus 230, minus 240 range earlier in the week. Money coming in on Miranda Granger because I think everybody that lost money on um, kind of last time around when she decided to, you know, not really pursue a grapple heavy approach against Elise Reed, they're trying to get that money back here uh, on the Miranda Granger side. Now, I'll say this if, going into that McKenna and Reed fight. I think people were over-exaggerating how good she is with her wrestling, right? She has solid grappling, but I think people are thinking that, you know, she's out there with Team Alpha Male. She's going to have this phenomenal wrestling, working with Sarah McMahon, you know, all that's going to help her out. But, like, I wasn't truly impressed with her with her top pressure and her ability to hold opponents down. And even though I predicted McKenna to win that night, the, the whole week I was kind of banging the, banging the drum, being like, hey, you know, th there could be value on Reed in this spot. She's clearly the better striker. She'll be able to land the better shots in those exchanges, and that's what ended up happening. She did get taken down three times, but she managed to get back to her feet all three times and then get back to work with her uh, striking, which she obviously had that clear advantage in. So shout out to anybody that got in on the least read side there. Now, in, in terms of this matchup, very interesting matchup in terms of their metrics, right? You got 5'7", Miranda Granger, who's going to have a 4-inch height advantage on Corey McKenna, but it doesn't stop there. She's also going to have a 10-inch reach advantage on her. So very much looking forward to seeing how Miranda Granger looks to use that, that range and that size to uh, her advantage to try to keep Corey McKenna on the outside. Because I could absolutely see a scenario where Miranda just sticks and moves, uses her kicks from the outside, and just try to keep Corey McKenna at bay. But even in the grappling, like I wonder how much McKenna is actually going to have success in terms of dragging her to the ground and having ultimate success in those those scenarios, right? Is she going to be a grinder to the mat and have uh, prolonged periods of grappling success similar to what Ashley Yoder was able to? But the difference is I think Yoder has better BJJ than Corey McKenna, which is why she was able to kind of stifle her and keep those, keep her in those positions, hold her back for as long as she did as well. I don't know if Corey McKenna can do that. The only thing that's ultimately keeping me off the Miranda Granger side is the fact that she just gave birth, right? She just had a kid, and Cody's always going to see his wife go through this over the next couple months. You'll see how she's going to have to be able to get back into her fitness ways, right? Uh, how are you going to do that as a fighter? Like, we don't have a whole lot of example, examples of active fighters going out there, having a kid, and trying to come back and compete at the highest level, right? We have Mackenzie Dern. We have Misha Tate. Julian Payne, yeah. 
Enya, right? She did capture the title, but like her first couple of fights back were a little bit rough, right? She beat, she just beat Nico Montano. She lost to Jermaine Durandamy. Those were their first two fights after coming back. Misha Tate, not looking the greatest either coming back from her, from her giving birth to a child as well. So ultimately that is the reason I'm going to be staying off the Miranda Granger side here. The spot that I'd say in terms of a prop to be looking at would probably be the overs. I'd be surprised if there's a finish in this spot. Minus 300 is the over two and a half. Obvious shock. Fight goes to decision minus 255. But you want to, you want to put a tinfoil hat kind of thing on, uh, Miranda Granger by submission uh, is currently sitting at plus 1600. If McKenna does get the takedowns, I think Granger could be gangly enough to, to throw up submissions and possibly catch her in something here. I'm not fully sold on it. Again, huge pregnancy narrative going into this, but I do like um, I do like the overs. Like if I go to decision prediction, I'll go with McKenna. McKenna by decision. What about yourself? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, Misha Tate's still looking as good as ever. Maybe not in the fight yeah. itself, but <laughs> you know uh, what I mean. <laughs> she, she a pregnancy pretty good, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. Yeah. My tinfoil hat conspiracy theory is that Corey McKenna by submission, being that you've got someone in Miranda Granger that shows she's kicking like a forty percent takedown defense, uh, not known to you know avoid submissions. That Amanda Lemos submission is a no hooks rear naked choke. And then in her fight with Ashley Yodder, she almost got submitted a couple of times. So she puts herself in bad spots. She's not known to be the best grappler. And, of course, she has a 10-inch reach advantage. Why would you want to stand with her? She's probably going to be getting grappled. So I kind of thought maybe low-key that would be the tinfoil hat greasy. But I'm leaning towards more so Corey McKenna by points. Now, listen, I definitely lost money on her against Elise Reed. And I would partly blame her, you know, for the fight. But I partly blame Goddamn Danny Castillo, her <laughs> coach. First of all, you're a wrestler, yeah. dog. You're a career yeah. wrestler. You wrestled in college. You wrestled in the WEC. Your whole game was wrestling. You now are a head coach, a team alpha male, a wrestling heavy gym, and you are one of the wrestling coaches at the gym. In what world are you keep telling her, like, doing real good standing, keep doing what you're doing standing? Are you not seeing the same thing I'm seeing? She's losing all these exchanges. Elise Reed's longer. She's faster. She's landing the right hand. She's landing significant shots. And no point is he like, you need to switch it up and grapple with her. And he's like, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Now, she lost the first two rounds. Whether they're close, yeah, maybe they're close, but she's down two rounds. In the third round, she decides on her own merit. I should probably take this fight to the ground. And when she did, I thought she won the third round. I thought she did pretty good. She got like three minutes of top position. You know, ends up on the numbers, gets a couple uh, takedowns in that round. Um, I thought that it was just like the bad game plan. She probably wanted to test her striking. She felt good with it. But like, again, her, her lead training partner in the gym, Sarah McMahon, an Olympic silver medalist, like the game plan should have been wrestling. And if she went out and wrestled against Elise Reed, maybe it's a different outcome. Unfortunately, you got to make those mistakes when you're a young fighter so that you're able to, uh, you know, change up the game plan, learn from them, come back a different a different athlete. And so that's what I'm hoping out of her. She's still super young. So there's no reason to think that a setback wouldn't be in theory good for her, you know, go and reevaluate some things. But beyond that, I think when you rewatch the fight, you'd be like, oh man, I'm, yeah, I'm losing these striking exchanges because my strike is just not there quite yet. She's a better striker. She's longer. She's beating me to the punch. But see, when I decide to wrestle, that's when I have my most success. Against Granger, it's going to be the same thing. She's got a 10 inch reach advantage on her. She's big. She's tall. She's scrappy. So your easiest path to victory would be to pursue the takedowns and get her to the ground and rinse and repeat. You need a win. A lot of people don't think she won the Kay Hansen fight. That could easily be a loss. And then you lost to Elise Reed. You're looking at 0-3 busted prospect scenario. She got gifted a decision against Hansen. She blew that last one against Reed on her own merit. She needs a good performance here. And so I would think going out there, 
offensively wrestling, sticking to it, and showing some uh, some newfound maturity as a fighter would all be good for business. So I would lean towards the McKenna by decision as being the most probable pick. And of course, at minus 145, not a great price tag. But uh, if you want to get all 10 foil hat conspiracy theory, she needs a good performance. She needs to pursue that submission. And of course, with Miranda Granger, a couple years ago, before the kid, she puts herself in bad spots. She gave up multiple takedowns to Ashley Yodder. In fact, Yodder got her down whenever she wanted. And the funny thing there is Yodder's rocking like a 30% takedown accuracy, like not known for actually getting many takedowns. And yet she just took her down at will and completely outgrappled her. So no reason to believe that Corey McKenna wouldn't be able to do something similar. And that's why I'm leaning towards either the submission or the decision. I love this uh, comment here from JC saying McKenna with the midget reach. <laughs> like, 15, I've never seen a reach. Inches. I've never yeah. seen it that low. Yeah. I mean, me and Paul used to laugh back in the day. People would be like 60 inches, right? Uh, 59 inches. Oh, whoa. Yeah. 58 inches. Do you remember what Sean Shirk was? No, the muscle shark. But it was like that is actual. Uh, yeah. Didn't he have like a 65 inch reach or something? Like it still would have been seven inches right longer than that. 67 inch reach. Wow. That yeah. is surprising to me. Did I guess that 67 or did I say 65? Doesn't matter. Well, I'm telling you, yeah, what I'm saying <laughs> is Sean Shirk with this uh he won the title and he defended against Hermes Franca. This would have been like 2007. I honestly was like, no man on this planet at 155 pounds would beat this guy. Like he was the package, just wrestle yeah. for five. He was the original American Khabib, you know, he could just wrestle for 25 minutes, but steroids you could get away with in those days, right? So uh, BJ came and slaughtered him with that flying knee, and he was never the same. But low key, muscle shark Sean Shirk was one of my favorite fighters. I met him one time, he was a dick, but that aside, <laughs> uh, he was like one of my original go to guys. I love never him. meet your heroes, Cody. Never meet your heroes. Right? Uh, the other heroes of mine I've met, yeah, like Joe Riggs, piece of shit, you know, Phil Brony, <laughs> this close to meeting him. I pulled out, and I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, they're not, yeah, they get punched in the head for a living. I'm sure they're good guys, but maybe not your kind of guy per se. Yeah, if you guys don't know about Sean Shirk, go back and check out some of his fights. Maybe not the most entertaining, but probably uh, different for that style. He's one of the bigger guys back in the day. Shirk, Penn, Hughes, like all that, that whole era. Just all of his losses are only today. gangsters. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Dude only lost to legendary Hall of Famers. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about the welterweight division. We got Jason Witt taking on Josh Quinlan in Quinlan's UFC debut. He's going to be coming in as a minus 245 favorite against Jason Witt, who's plus 205. Very interesting about this fight, right, in terms of can Jason's, Jason quits chin not quit? You like that little uh, verbiage there? Uh, I, I wonder if he'll be able to stay in and, and keep his durability up, right? Because you could possibly get a fight like the Brian Barbarena fight where he takes all the salacious uh, beating and, and still manages to come forward and, and still win that fight. But then you see the other instances, right? You see the Takashi Sato fight, who we'll be talking about later on in this card. You see the, um, uh, what was the one after that? There's another one that he had uh, completely got starched in his last uh, Samuelsberger completely charges and gets him out of there as well, right? So uh, we know that's always in play, right? Either Jason Witt will go out there and out grapple you, or he'll, you know, have some grappling success and then eventually get chin checked and get put get put out there. Quinlan, you know, five and old guy seems to be the complete package in terms of you know having knockout power as well as having some solid BJJ so that he can be safe enough on the ground should fights get taken to that uh, to that spot. Not to mention solid cardio as well, but. That's where the train stops, right? That's where things get questionable, considering that after he got that 47-second knockout on the contender series, my man popped for the juice. My man popped for those Mexican supplements. And, 
you know, we don't know how that's going to affect him going into this fight. He's already fighting out of one fight team, which I'm surprised still exists to begin with. Uh, I know Vanilla was nowhere near that gym nowadays. I know he's chilling down there in, in Brazil. But um, yeah, it, it's the, the, the possibility of Quinlan and having a little bit of a decline because of the PED use that he had in the past weighs in my head. Because if even a little bit of that power is gone, you know, Jason Witt could have some success here with those takedowns and just grind on him from on top. He is a big dude for 170 pounds. He's a very strong dude for 170 pounds. But it's so hard to trust, trust that goddamn chin. I feel like, you know, Quinlan will still be able to find that chin, put him down and put him out. But we just have to be a little bit more open-minded. Sometimes it's not as easy as this guy's just going to go out there and knock him out. Sometimes it's not going to be as easy as Maze has just got to stay on the outside, touched up uh, Hamdi, and then he should be able to beat him later in this fight. It doesn't work out like that all the time, right? And this is a perfect example where Jason Witt, if he does survive those striking onslaughts, things could get rough. Things could get a little bit rough for Quinlan here. So uh, I'm not big on the, the money line here, but I do like the uh, the KO prop at plus 110. I think that would be the best way to be, uh, play uh, to play Quinlan excuse me, to play Quinlan here. I'm not counting out a possible club and sub situation as well. His submission prop currently sits at plus 500. He has a couple submission victories on his record as well, and I could see a club and sub situation. His inside the distance line currently sits at uh, minus 125. That might be the better way to go so you don't get burnt You know, with your hand in the cookie jar trying to take that plus 110 on the KO line. But I think Quinlan eventually finds that chin, puts him down, and either snatches up the neck or gets him out of there. So give me uh, Quinlan inside the distance, minus 125. What do you think here? Do you think, sorry, I want to pose a question to you. What do you think the USADA suspension will do to him here? Do you think it will detract from his uh, performance, or do you think he'll just come out there and still look like the killer that he looked like in his five previous professional fights? Yeah, we'll segue in from Sean Shirk over to this guy. Shirk really <laughs> never looked the same they took the hole. But yeah, he's only 29 years old. Like, I don't think he's one of these old-timey Vitor Belfort types that needs extra testosterone or his body doesn't work. It's just like, unfortunately, he got caught with something. You see a lot of guys get flagged, get suspensions from USADA, come back, and they're just as good as they were before. Maybe he also figured out a different way to cycle it, or who knows what the reason might be. But I'm not overly concerned about it. Looking at his record, though, even as an amateur, 6-0 as an amateur, undefeated as a pro, he does get taken down. He doesn't fight particularly well off his back foot. And you know Witt's going to charge forward and push him backwards. But when he does get taken down, he's got a good get-up game. Also, his takedown defense, not half bad. He makes you work for it. And he's a guy that seemingly is able to carry his power to the second and third round and has power in both hands. So a guy like that's just made for Witt might have some early success with him. But the longer the fight goes, he's going to get back up. He's going to have some opportunities. And he's going to chin-check Witt. Now, before Jason Witt came to the UFC, he had three knockout losses. Those knockout losses included one that was like 13 seconds into the third round, one that was 54 seconds into the second round. Sometimes they're early into the round, but he had a pile of wins where he had been wobbled, pile of wins that he toppled over, a couple submission losses that are caused because he's half knocked out. So I didn't think he had a good chin when he came to the UFC. And then, of course, Takashi Sato, 48 seconds. That's a bad look. Semmelsberger, 16 seconds. That's a bad look. Semmelsberger only landed three strikes that night, okay? It took it took three strikes to effectively knock Jason Witt out. So the Philip Rowe fight, I'm, I'm loading up on Rowe. I'm like, dude, this guy can't take a punch. Now the first round starts with Witt can wrestle. The dude's an actually good wrestler. Physically strong, grinding, hard-nosed press, goes in there, closes the distance, gets a hold of you, peels you off the cage, plants you on the ground. He takes Rowe down. He takes him down multiple times in the first round. Rowe lands two strikes in the first round. He can't get anything going off his back. The second round, like the very first opportunity he had to land something, he knocks Jason Witt out. So effectively, he landed eight strikes in that fight, six in that second round, 
and he knocks out Jason Witt. So it, it's not like you got to put a beating on this guy. Just something needs to split the guard. And when you're fighting with four-ounce gloves, it's not boxing. You can't block the same, you know? You can't take the same type of shots, right? So with Witt, it's just seemed like he is a, a liability, a matter-of-time kind of guy. And then here's the other thing. Witt's style, like for what it is, is really hard-press grinding. Look at his wins. So Cole Williams, he fought Cole Williams into the second round, and he had landed 20 strikes. Very low. His win over Brian Barberena, he landed 35 significant strikes. Even though he had eight takedowns, even though the fight went the distance, he had landed 35 significant strikes. And then that row fight, dude, the fight went seven and a half minutes, and he landed eight strikes. Four takedowns, eight strikes. He's not ground and pounding you. Unless you're bum-ass Cole Williams, he's not submitting you. He's just looking to take you down and maybe hold some position. And these guys, they're, they're, they're pushing their way up. They're creating space. They're standing, and they're cracking them. When they're cracking them... He's not taking them. So Quinlan seems to have sufficient firepower, a good enough get-up game, and good enough takedown defense to create those opportunities that I would have to ride that him by TKO line. I like it. I like it. I, I hope he can find that chin because if he does, he will be able to get him out of there. Um, all right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about another welterweight belt. This is going to be the welterweight debut of Brian Battle, former Ultimate Fighter winner. He's going to be taking on Takashi Sato, in terms of odds, we got chalk on the Brian Battle side as he's approaching minus 300 at this point, plus 240, plus 250 is a return on Takashi Sato. I'm a big Brian Battle fan, man. I love his style. The guy is all volume, all output, all action pretty much, and he has a really good all-around game. He doesn't come from one of these big gyms that a lot of people kind of you know puff their chests about. If I'm not mistaken, he's out of North Carolina, but uh, he's to be the best guy in the gym at that time and uh, i'm assuming at a certain point he's gonna have to make a change and bring in some better sparring partners but at this point in time you know the level of competition he's going to be fighting i think he's completely fine where he's at you know uh the the last fight against trishan gore we saw him go out there and double the output of trishan gore uh pretty much beating him to the punch every single time and he may not have a lot on his strikes but he has a great all-around game which makes you think about is he going to strike with me is he going to clinch with me or is he going to look to grapple me um I think that we're going to see him put on a solid display here against Takashi Sato. I think at a certain point, he'll be able to drag this fight to the ground, maybe look into the second round, maybe halfway, maybe that over one and a half round mark where he's able to get him to the ground, work him there, and then eventually open up a submission opportunity. I'm liking Brian Battle by submission, which is uh, you know anywhere around plus 275 and plus 350, depending on the bookie that you're looking at. Uh, I think he'll be very successful in doing that. Submissions and jiu-jitsu has kind of been the bane of the Dakashi Sato UFC run. We obviously saw Blah Muhammad get one of his uh, you know very rare finishes inside the UFC by getting the back and and snatching up that rear naked choke against Dakashi Sato, and then even on the uh, uh, two fights ago with Miguel Baeza. You know, Baeza strikes with him for the first round, eventually grapples in the second, submission opportunity opens itself up, and we see him snatch the neck. Now, I get it. Gunnar Nelson was minus 200 submission oh. that oh. night against him and could oh. not get the submission. Maybe Takashi was like, okay, this guy's, you know, that, that's all Gunnar Nelson really had in that fight was, I got to take this fight to the ground, get this guy's back, and try to choke him out. So Takashi kind of knew what to be expecting there. Here with Brian Battle, he's going to be getting the full package. He's going to be getting striking. He's going to have to get work in the striking run before he eventually gets taken down and then eventually finishes him with the, with the choke there. So I'm not of the belief that just because Gunnar Nelson wasn't able to submit this guy that Brian Battle won't be able to. Every fight is different, right? Miguel Baeza submitted this guy. And I think it was plus 1,200 for him to get a submission that night, which I was able to cash on because I saw that flaw in Takashi Sato's game. 
I see the flaw here as well. And I think Brian Battle will look great on the scales tomorrow morning as he's a guy that could definitely have used uh, a little bit more of a weight cut, even at 185 pounds. I think he'll look tremendous. And then he'll go out there and re replicate that physique by having a great performance, just as good as what his physique looks like nowadays. Give me Brian Battle submission plus 275, plus 300, whatever number you want to call it. Am I too high on the Brian Battle train here or are you thinking of the same thing here? Yeah, I think he wins, especially if he makes a good weight cut down to 170, probably a better weight class for him. But I'm not really necessarily feeling the submission prop because I, I think, again, it looks easy. Oh, man, Takashi Sato can't grapple. And I'm one of the suckers that bet Gunnar Nelson by submission thinking easy money. And for the record, we spent eight minutes and nine seconds on the dude's back, and we didn't even come close. But I, I do think part of that was Gunnar Nelson not going for it. But part of it's Takashi Sato, you know, he defended it pretty well. And the thing with Brian Battle is that his offensive wrestling is not all that good. That's my biggest issue. Defensive wrestling, very solid. He's good at either getting taken down, getting back up. As an amateur, he's got wins over Impa Katsangani and Cody Brundridge. Uh, on the Ultimate Fighter show, he beat Andre Petrosky, who's like a physical specimen. The guy is a good counter-wrestler. His offensive wrestling, though, is not that good. You see him in the UFC. He has completed a couple of takedowns. He took down Gilbert Urbina one time, although he gave up two takedowns in that spot. More or less, I would say, wrestling advantage towards Gilbert Urbina. Not particularly the greatest performance from Byron Battle in that aspect. But, of course, you know, it is Gilbert Urbina. It's that Trejan Gore fight, the next one. He was one for eight on takedowns in that fight. What he did do an excellent job, though, is long-range kickboxing, stayed to the outside and just kept putting up volume. As you mentioned, he doubles up Trejan Gore, and Trejan Gore is a guy that has big power. So he did an excellent job of mining his P's and Q's, staying to the outside and continuously throwing up that volume. And I think that would be the path of victory to being Takashi Sato, is that you're the bigger man coming down from 185 pounds. You should be able to march him backwards. You should be able to push him to back to the base of the cage and just use that long-range kickboxing. Now, yes, Takashi Sato is a murderous power puncher. You look at all of his pancreas wins, they're all KOs. You look at the success that he has had in the UFC, the few wins that he has had, thereby KO. You're going to have to mind your P's and Q's. But outside of Brian Battle's very first amateur fight five years ago, he's shown an excellent chin. You know, he's got some good durability. I think he did a good job of taking Gore's best shots, mining his P's and Q's, staying to the outside, and just putting up that volume. And that's where I think he wins this fight. He's capable of throwing up over 100 significant strikes. And Takashi Sato is a guy that just waits entirely too long. And then last but not least, Sato waits way too long. He's too patient with his hands. But part of that is because he knows he's going to get taken down, so he's hesitant to let it go. Even though Brian Battle's offensive wrestling isn't great, if he just keeps him honest with it and threatens it a little bit, it's going to cause Sato to shut down again, and Battle should be able to uh, pick up a points decision. But I don't think you're crazy with a submission win, right? I just I don't think it's so that clear cut that it's like, oh, Brian Battle's got good jiu-jitsu and Takashi Sato's got bad jiu-jitsu. If this fight hits the ground, it's over. It's like, I think getting the fight to the ground will probably be a little bit tougher than some people expect it to. But regardless, I'm on the same side as you. I think Battle gets the job done. I like it. I'm hoping to catch that submission prop, but even taking, uh, I got in early. I know it's a little bit chalk on his uh, money line, but I got in at minus 230 earlier this week. I think he's a, a damn good spot. I, I think there's going to be some landmines on this card, but I think he's one of the safer spots on this card, given his style of fighting. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're going to be going on to our fifth fight here, and this is uh, a fight between T-Rex, Terrence McKinney, and Ghost Pepper, Eric Gonzalez. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus... Ooh, minus 850. I'm seeing a little bit of action coming in on Eric Gonzalez because I did see Terrence oh, McKinney yeah. closer to minus 1,000 earlier in the week. But let's say minus 850 for the sake of this podcast for Terrence McKinney, plus 600 the return on Ghost Pepper. It's crazy to see that much love for a guy that has like three minutes of gas, right? But like, that's how he fights. You know, 13 out of 15 fights have not seen the second round. 
14 out of those 15 fights finished under one and a half rounds. Like Terrence McKinney is all action right from the jump. You just, you can wiki cap the dude and figure that out. But obviously watching his fights, you can see him go out there and do that as well. Um, he has a solid grappling and wrestling background, which he uses at times. Like he obviously used it against Fierceum and got him out of there relatively quickly. But like this guy wants to go out there and just bang. This guy wants to go out there and get you out of there. And, you know, knowing that he doesn't get paid by the minute, just wants to get in and out, taking as less damage as possible. We saw it in the Drew Dober fight, had Dober on all sorts of uh, skates and trouble in that spot, but blows his wad trying to finish him and eventually gets finished himself. That's the risk that he runs into. By fighting like this, you are giving up the opportunity that your gas tank is going to pay for this and your opponent has more of a chance of beating you, you know, if they can survive that early Banshee onslaught. Now, I think this fight continues with the trend, right? I think this continues with the under one and a half hitting. When's the last time that you saw an under one and a half and minus 265 for a fight that's not a heavyweight fight? And even yeah. heavyweight fights, you barely see that ever. That never happens. It's only ever going to be for Terrence McKinney fights because that's what he brings, all action, all the time. He has a great uh, head kick, which he's been able to catch with a couple uh, of his opponents. His grappling is probably his best suit, but he does have a lot of power. Like, I've seen him knock out guys from guard in the past because he has th that, like, weird, lanky frame where he's able to generate so much crazy power and, and put it on these guys. So rather than take the minus 850 on McKinney straight up here, I'm taking the under one and a half because I think even if he doesn't get the finish, he can go out there and get finished himself. Uh, fight to not start round three. I've seen roughly around minus 350, minus 370. So if you want that extra two and a half minutes of insurance, I don't mind taking the extra bit of chalk on that either. But I do think McKinney gets him out of there relatively easy. There's a reason him to win in round one is currently at minus 200. Yeah, my, actually, I'm seeing minus 165, uh, minus 180 at certain places. Uh, I'll throw this out there as my tinfoil conspiracy hat theory of the night. Uh, Gonzalez round two plus 2,500. Gonzalez round three plus 3,500. I do not expect that to hit, but should this fight get out of that first round, maybe even a live entry on Eric Gonzalez would be warranted, but even pre-fight taking plus 2,500 or plus 3,500, not too bad of a look. CloudBet does have a prop for this matchup, uh, and it is based on uh, Terrence McKenney. Will this fight last longer than three minutes and 17 seconds, which is the longest fight that Terrence McKinney has had since joining the UFC? Yes is plus 104. No is minus 102. What would you say for that first and foremost? And then obviously, who do you think ends up getting this, uh, getting the dub here and what the best prop is? Uh, I would say no, just because I kind of think this is going to be a somewhat of a quick finish the way Terrence McKinney fights, but you just don't know. Did he change anything from losing to Drew Dober? Like, does that not cause you to be like, you know what? Maybe I should be a little more patient. He's got all the skills. He's a wicked good wrestler. He's a great athlete. He's got huge power. Like, why not just take your time and set it up? So in that regard, he could take a little bit longer than three minutes and 17 seconds. And Eric Gonzalez, like, um, you know, I'm shitting on him the exact same way everybody else is, but no one's putting any thought into it. They're all just like, dude, Jim Miller knocked him out. <laughs> That's it. So this is the first time he's ever been knocked out for the record. So is he a chinny guy? Like, is McKinney just going to walk right through him? But, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I just try to go with what seems like the most conventional line of thinking, and I think McKinney just tries to get the jump on him. So to answer your initial question, do I think it is goes over under 3 minutes and 17 seconds? I'm leaning towards the under. Furthermore, I think the best prop on it would be the Terrence McKinney by TKO at plus 110. Still getting plus money on him, and you see the kind of power he's got. Against friends I am, he did snatch up the rear naked choke, but – Friends, I am, you know, pretty good chin on him. Good Muay Thai striker. 
maybe just best opportunity was to grab the rear naked choke. But against, you know, more so often than not, like you're saying, when he gets takedowns, he's looking for ground and pound. When the fight's standing, he's whipping out these huge head kicks. He's throwing out big, long, rangy hooks. Drew Dober's got a cast iron chin on him, relatively and figuratively speaking. Uh, to be able to hurt him and stun him in that kind of way, like if he does the exact same thing and just gets a quick pounce on Eric Gonzalez, he puts him away. It's fighters change mindsets, you know, like, oh, okay, uh, I'm having a whole lot of success bum rushing guys. His wins are 16 seconds, 17 seconds, a minute 21, seven yeah. seconds, 211. It's like, yeah, this works. I'm just going to keep doing this. But when you run into Dober, a fringe top 10 guy, that's the realization that's like, you know what? I have all the skills in the world. I'm a talented fighter. I just maybe have to pace myself a little bit more, right? And that changes you. So, if we get the same guy that we got against Dober, yeah, we're hitting the under on that 317. We're hitting the first round prop. We're hitting the Terrence McKinney by TKO prop. We're all very happy people. But uh, yeah, he's still young, right? So his mindset changes. Like we had Max Roshkoff on the show yesterday. So it was nice picking a show before and at, like uh, before the show. And then we did the interview with him. But it's very much like something. So you have a realization, you know, something happens in a fight and that's your moment to be like, this is what I need to do different, which is why I'm a huge proponent of, I like when these guys lose so they can lose, lose the undefeated record, take that pressure off your shoulder, go to the gym and realize something, right? Even action, man, my boy shit the bed last time out against Jack Hermanson, but that's going to cause him to go back to the gym and figure out how the fuck do you cut off a cage? Because for a 45 veteran, something he probably should have known by now. But he didn't, right? It's all about, like, you learn and you have to change things. And Phil Hawes used to be a bum rusher just like Terrence McKinney. used to go out there and just try to take you out as quick as you could. And what became the knock on Phil Hawes, man? Pre Geez, the guy gasses out pretty fast, right? And he's not able to fight a couple of rounds. A good wrestler, talented guy, athletic, huge power, but he's bang or bust in that first round. But you see Phil Hawes now can still kill you in the first round, but is patient. You know, he lets Duran win hang to the second because he realizes I don't want to overexert myself, so... I know I'm talking around in circles. I got the under. I got the McKinney. I got the McKinney first round. I got the McKinney by TKO at plus 110. But uh, that's really just hoping that McKinney fights the way he normally does and is not trying to mature and become a better fighter. Because if he wants to be a world champion, if he wants to be a top five, top 10 guy, he's not going to be able to do this forever. At some point, he'll have to change. I'm hoping it's against a tougher opponent and not Eric Gonzalez. Fight Eric Gonzalez the same way you've been fighting these other guys. Let's mature a little bit more down the road. Great comparison with Phil Haas. I never really thought about that, but that is a damn good comparison, right? Guys thought he was a first-rounder buzz type of fighter. Then he decided that I got to change my ways. I got to push out my gas tank a little bit better. And we see him get decision victories over Nasruddin Imabov, right? We see him get decision victories over these other guys. So um, very, very solid comparison there. Terrence McKenney, hopefully he doesn't make that change this weekend. But yeah, uh, later, later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple more fights when you get up there a little bit more. But that will definitely work out from us, especially with the grappling uh, edge that he usually has in his fights. If he can extend that and, and grind these guys out a little bit more and find these finishes later, it will benefit him a lot more. All right. Let's move on to the prelim headliner here. We're going to be talking about a middleweight fight between Mihal Oleg Shejuk and Sam Alvey. We got minus 600 on Mihal and plus 450 to return on Sam Alvey. Now, very interesting fight here for Sam Alvey, who came out a couple months ago and said that the UFC called him up and said, hey, you know, you've been a great company man. You've been a guy that we, we really respect. Every time we've offered you an opponent, you've always said yes. You've never really let us down, but you're all on this obvious you know losing streak right now win this streak if you want to call it because he does have that draw sprinkled in there with Da Eun Jung we'll give you one more fight it's the last fight of your contract 
I'll give you one more fight. Could you imagine him going out there and springing the upset and getting back into the UFC and getting another contract if he's actually able to pull off a gigantic upset here? You know, being a plus four fifty underdog, it's absolutely live. Apparently, win or lose, he's done. Like even if he kills, I heard. Apparently, it's done both sides. It's just like we'll let you fight this out. But Alexis Davis fought out the last fight of her contract. She ended up winning, and they still released her. Right, so they're looking to they're looking to shave off some of these contracts. Sam would he if he wins. It doesn't change the fact that he'd be one seven and one in his last nine and has one win in the last four years. It doesn't change that, right? It'd be a good way to send him off, but that's what it is, is a send-off, right? Yeah, interesting. I didn't realize it was kind of kind of uh you know already stipulated that even if he gets a win, he's out of there. Either way, you know, big spot for him to go out there and try to, you know, right the wrongs of the last several years and hopefully end up his UFC career with a win. But that's going to be a tough task against a guy in Mihal Oleg Shejak, who's finally coming down to the weight class I thought he should have been at this entire time, right? 205, I think he realized last time around against Dustin Jacoby that these guys are just too big for me. And Dustin Jacoby is not even really the cream of the crop of the light heavyweight division, right? We're not even getting into the top 10 uh, yet. Uh, and we're talking about Dustin Jacoby being too big. So imagine fighting bigger and more skilled guys than Justin, Dustin Jacoby had he continued his run at uh, 205 pounds. So happy to see him down at 185 pounds. According to Instagram, the guy looks great. Yeah, I mean, he's trimming the weight that he probably should, or he's trimming the weight the correct way. He's working with the nutritionist. We'll see how he looks tomorrow morning when he actually steps on the scale. But uh, this is a, a, a solid spot for him to go out there and make a splash in this middleweight division with the big win over Sam Alvey. Uh, I love his style. Forward movement, rip the body as much as possible, eventually wait for those hands to get low enough that you can start attacking the head, and then you get your opponent out of there that way. I love, love, love his style. Very, pretty much all action all the time. Very rarely do you ever see him take a back step. So I'm expecting him to put the pressure on Sam Alvey here. We know Sam Alvey style, back up, you know, glue myself to the back of the cage and uh, throw big overhands whenever the opponent gets close enough and hope that one of them dings them so that he can drop them and, uh, you know, make it look good for the judges or even get a knockout victory of his own. But one thing that Sam Alvey used to be very reliable for was durability. During this winless streak, though, it's really starting to come back and bite him in the ass. I think those years of him banking on his chin to help him get through most of these fights is now starting to come back and uh, rear its ugly head. And I think that we're going to see it once again here with Oleg Shejuk marching him down, throwing big strikes, working the body, working the head, eventually get that knockout, get him out of there. Give me my how Oleg Shejuk by KO which currently sits at uh, minus 110. But even the fight doesn't go to the decision in case of the off chance of Sam Alvey actually catching Oleg Shejuk, especially if Oleg Shejuk gets a little bit too reckless. Uh, and again, what who knows uh, how that durability might be affected with him going down in weight as well now. Um, Oleg Shejuk by KO is probably the best play. I don't mind the fight doesn't go to the decision at minus 175, though, like I said, to cover both possible outcomes. But Mihal should get it done. War Lord Mihal. What are you thinking here, Cody? What are you liking? Same thing. I think you cover yourself on both bases by taking that fight doesn't go the distance, maybe even the under two and a half, because uh, Sam Alvey, if he's got anything, yeah, he, it's his last fight. So you got to realize that he's probably going to go out and fight somewhat desperate. You want to know something funny, you can go back and watch it, but <laughs> this is a long time ago now. The Dong Jung fight, that was the last fight on his deal. And he, he's done after that. That's the last fight. So he goes out and he was very adamant pre-fight. Like, I'm just going to go and throw down because I've got nothing to lose. My contract's on the line. At this point, he was on a losing streak. He was on a three-fight losing. Dude, he's on a four-fight losing streak. He's on a four-fight losing streak and the last fight of his deal. So he knows he's done. 
He threw down against Dong Jung. It was a decent enough performance. He ends up with a draw. That's why he signed a new Ford fight deal is because he got a draw. It wasn't a loss. They felt bad. A lot of people thought he won that fight. So they signed him on a new one, and the new one just hasn't been good, right? So it's the same thing. He's going to go out and fight desperate, and that makes him dangerous enough that this thing ain't going the distance. But a, a desperate man and a guy with a little bit of power is just not enough. Sam Alvey, for the record, has like one KO win in the last four years against Marcin Pracnia that ran headfirst into it. He's got two KO wins in the last like eight years. So he's not exactly known for that big power anymore. Is cast iron durability, like this guy was very difficult to take out. Uh, all of a sudden it's been, he's been finished four of his last seven fights. And, and it's just like the level of guys that's taking him out is consistently getting a little bit lower, right? They're hurting him. They're dropping him. He got dropped by Julian Marquez. He got dropped by Brennan Allen. He got stunned in a lot of these fights and I just feel like the writing's on the wall for him. So guy's got six kids. He, you know, he's a, one of the head coaches at that, uh, Dan Henderson gym in Temecula, California. He's got other things going on. No doubt he's going to go fight for it. I just don't know if it's going to be enough. For Mikhail Olokchuk, meanwhile, I think, you know, you more or less load up on the guy. The money line's out of control at this point because everyone kind of knows what's going to happen. I think if you're trying to pursue it a specific way or a specific prop, he's not submitting most guys. Uh, he's definitely a striker. Guy likes to work the body, set up those headshots, and I feel like he should be able to go out there and TKO Sam Alvey, so I would pursue it by the TKO. But, like, the only thing that's got me a little bit gun-shy currently sitting here talking to you on the Thursday is I, I I'd like to see him weigh in. Like, I don't even know, even though he's not a big 205er, I don't think he's a guy that cuts weight particularly well. He fought as a pro. He has, he has 20, this would be his 21st pro fight. So as a pro, he has 20 pro fights. And as an amateur, dude had a long ass amateur career too. He has 11 fights as an amateur. So in total, he's got 31 documented fights. And of those 31 documented fights, he's never made it any lower than 192. The time he made it to 192 was a middleweight fight, but apparently he missed weight by seven pounds in that fight and came in at 192. Every other fight he's had have been catch weights of 192, 205, and he competed at 212 like three or four times, which I, I feel is very unreasonable, but the level of competition was probably low. He's got a soft body. A lot of UFC fighters, you see them get on the scale and you're like, damn, I wish I was ripped up like that guy. Not Alexic Chuck. It's like, yeah, he just kind of seems soft-ish. He's a little undersized at 205. He should be able to make 185. But the drop from 205 pounds to 185 pounds is 20 pounds. Most weight classes, it's 10. You want to drop from lightweight to featherweight, 10. Featherweight to bantamweight, 10. This is a 20-pound drop. I understand they're bigger, so there's more to lose. But if he shows up and is, like, sickly, doesn't have a good weight cut, burns himself out in the first round, which we've all seen him do a time or two, and Sam Alvey shows up as a desperate man with nothing to lose and throws down... You'd be glad you had that fight. Don't go the distance at minus 170. So that's why that's the safer bet covers you both sides. But that's a lot of what ifs. So I want to see the weigh-ins. But outside of a tragically bad weight cut, I, I, I still feel like Alexa Chuck just rolls him up somewhat early and gets him out by TKO. So that will be the official play there is the Alexa Chuck by TKO. I hope so. Uh, it'll be great to see him have that success in his first fight over at middleweight. And we'll see how far he can actually take it as well. The guy could, you know, make some noise in that uh, division, especially with the style of fighting. Speaking of uh, uh, middleweights as well, something I just came across right now. Uh, shout out to our guy, or at least my guy, KB Buller, uh, getting matched up against Curtis Millinder. <laughs> yeah. Interesting uh, fight for Unified there. Dude, you know what? It is a good fight because if you know how to wrestle, Curtis Millinder is a layup. If you don't plan on wrestling, Curtis Millinder is a pretty decent striker. Now, he looked terrible his last time out against Jared Gooden, but all the same, that's a fun fight. That's a good fun fight that'll be uh, good times. And lucky for you, Cloudbet will have an official line on it. So 
join us for that. Maybe we'll talk about a little uh, unified. There you guys go. All right, let's move on to the uh, next fight here. Uh, actually, uh, that brings us to our main card. So want to take this time always to shout out the 150 live viewers that we currently have. Appreciate you guys joining us on this Thursday evening to break down the card from a props perspective. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe below if you haven't already. Also, shout out to betonline.ag. Cody said that CloudBet's going to be having those uh, unified props or those uh, odds. It's actually going to be BetOnline that has those props because BetOnline has you covered for all your MMA needs or gambling means, I should say, as they usually have a lot of regional shows on there that you guys can bet on, as well as usually being the first guys on the block with the uh, odds for MMA as well as props. So make sure you guys go check out betonline.ag. Link in the description below. They'll match your initial deposit up to 50%, up to $1,000. And then obviously shout out to CloudBet as well for sponsoring the show and absolutely coming up with some amazing props as well, which I believe I missed out on here actually for the Sam Alvey and Mihal Oleksijuk. Excuse me, <clears throat> I don't know what that what happened there, but uh, yeah, for the Sam Alvey Oleksijuk fight, there is a special prop for this, and I'll pose this question to you before we actually move on to the next one, Cody. Uh, Mihal Oleksijuk over under fifty five and a half significant strikes. What are you thinking? My gut tells me under because I just think Sam Alvey's durability is gone. If he hits him and he hits him early, and especially because he's coming down, he makes the weight, he's got the power, everything's good, that it, it would be a under 55 significant strikes. So that, that's what I'm going to roll with. Right there with you as well. You guys can get minus 109 currently on that if you take the under 55 and a half. All right. That brings us to our main card, like I said, and we'll kick this off right away. First fight on the main card, a flyweight belt between Ariane Lipsky and Priscilla Cachoeira. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 175 on Lipsky, plus 150 to return on Priscilla Cachoeira. Weird fight. Weird, weird fight because we know, and I've been saying this all week, we know that Ariane Lipsky is the better mixed martial artist in this fight. But is she the better fighter? And that's why I'm considering the underdog here on the Cachoeira side. We know what she brings to the table, right? She fights like her nickname, the zombie girl. She moves forward. She eats a significant amount of strikes, but is still able to put the pressure and pace on her opponents. And sometimes she can break them like she did against Gina Mazzani, or sometimes she just can take them to a decision. And even if she didn't deserve the decision, the optics of the way that she fights always favors her. She's always the one moving forward. She's always the one throwing big leather. And, May or, she may or may not have deserved that Ji-Yoon Kim decision. I'm more so thinking that she didn't, but she still went out there and got the job done because the judges like what she does. The judges like seeing her move forward and throw in these big strikes because according to her, or according to them, she has octagon control by being the one that's moving forward. And most of the shots, you know, she might be missing most of them, but at least she's landing enough to pair with the octagon control for the judges to be like, okay, she deserves to win that round. Now Lipsky could absolutely touch her up here. Lipsky could absolutely, you know, land uh, more significant strikes than her and uh, land good enough damage that the judges actually see her side of things. But I see this playing out a lot closer than the odds indicate. I used to be a, be a big Lipsky girl, uh, guy in the past. Uh, you know, she came in as a minus 250 favorite against uh, Joanne Calderwood. She followed it up as a minus 265 favorite against Molly McCann, shitting the bed both times. And all the wins that she has in the UFC... Uh, sketchy, right? Like uh, Isabel de Padua takes that fight on 24 hours notice, not even, right? Like right before the wins, they ask her to jump in because uh, I think it was Veronica Macedo that pulled out uh, her next one, Luana Carolina. I would have loved to see that fight go deeper, right? I had money on Lipsky there, but like 
looking back at it, I'm not sure if I would make that bet again, uh, especially considering the form that we're seeing Carolina in at this point in time. She gets a knee bar there, quick win, good win for her. And then her other win against Mandy Baum. We know Mandy Baum is really not the greatest either, right? Especially after the performance she put up against Le Victoria Leonardo last time around. So I am skeptical of the level of competition that uh, Lipsky can actually beat. I think Casuera is somewhere in between the fighters that Lipsky has lost to and the fighters that she's beaten, but I think it's more so on the side of the fighters that she's lost to. I think Casuera can put on a decent enough performance here, keep move, moving forward, putting on the pressure on Lipsky and getting the judge's decision here. We're currently seeing Casuera by decision sitting at plus 300. Sign me up for that. I've already bet the, the money line here at plus 150. I think she's a solid underdog spot here. What are you thinking for this women's flyweight fight? Yeah, no, I simped out on this one. Decided to go the, uh, the You goddamn way. simp, Cody. How Listen, I know, I know it's like a busted prospect. Like, I, I get that. She came to the UFC. She certainly has not lived up to anything resembling, uh, you know, expectations. So, like, yeah, like, I, I, I hear it 100%. But, uh, yeah, you got to think, you know what? Maybe there was something back in the day when she first came to the UFC. I mean, she shows her pre-UFC wins. Shyla Gaff, UFC veteran. Diana Belbita, currently in the UFC. Mariana Moraes is in the PFL tournament, and Silva Gomez Juarez is currently in the UFC and doing quite well for herself. So she actually beat a good level of competition before getting there. But she fought Joanne Calderwood. Joanne Calderwood's like a perennial top fighter in the division. You know, she was a top 10, top five girl for a very long time and kind of got on that cusp of a title shot. She's like a two to two and a half to one favorite over Joanne Calderwood, and she's 24 years old. It's a big task. So she loses to her. She lost to Molly McCann, who, by the way, isn't terrible herself. She's just still so young. Shevchenko outgrapples her. Antonina, bad sign. Montana De La Rosa outgrapples her. Bad sign. Now at this point, she's busted prospect. But she's still only, for the record, 27 years old. But you're right. She's not fighting quite well. Her Muay Thai doesn't look as effective. Her takedown defense is non-existent. Everybody has every reason to write her off, myself included. She doesn't look all that good. But then she makes the good mental decision here. I need to change camps and give it one last go. So she moves to American Top Team. And then I know it's just one fight against a really low-level girl in Mandy Baum. So, like, how much can you realistically take away from that? She decisioned her. She dropped her twice. She controlled the pace from the outside. She just looked physically a much better shape. She looked a lot more focused. Her cardio looked good. She looked strong. And I'm, I'm hoping that at still 28 years old, she can still turn the corner. And being in an ultra-good facility with one of the best women's team in the game, I think uh, she's going to start to show some of those improvements and get more comfortable in there. When you talk about... Priscilla Cachoeira, she's fun because she fights as an underdog and she will fight for your dollar. She's always coming forward. She's mixing it up. But, like, facts are facts, and she's just not very good. Her wins are Shayna Dobson, Gina Mazzani, and Ji Yun Kim. What's interesting there is the Gina Mazzani fight, she's losing. She's losing quite handily in that first round until Gina Mazzani gasses out and she's able to take over. It's not a clean win. In the Ji Yun Kim fight, I like 16 media members. I think 14 of them scored it for Ji Yun Kim. I scored the fight for Ji Yun Kim. Jian Kim outstruck her 170 to 104. Jian Kim actually by the numbers outstruck her by a margin in all three rounds. But those elbows at the end of the third. Oh, man. Pretty crazy. It was a good fight. It was a dog fight. Very fun. Again, this is a girl that will fight for your dollar. And if you can get plus money on her, not a bad call. But uh, I thought she lost the Jian Kim fight. Uh, she was losing the Gina Mazzani fight, which is very low level. And then the other win, Shayna Dobson. So... The wins are very low level. She's a scrapper. She's willing to get in there and mix it up, sure. But 
I'm thinking someone will be there to expose her ever so slightly. Lipsky, meanwhile, not a good wrestler, not a good grappler, but in comparison to Priscilla Cachoeira, she might be able to mix that in a little bit. I'm just hoping that she's just a lot more cleaner in technical standing. Priscilla Cachoeira will try to crash forward. This is the apex. It will be the small cage. There will be a lot of, you know, fighting inside the clinch. But again, Lipsky's got excellent Muay Thai. She's good in the clinch. She's got good elbows. She's got good knees. Uh, she needs to keep up that pace very high because we know Cachoeira is going to be throwing down. But I think at the end of it, they're going to end up gifting it towards Lipsky. So Lipsky by decision, I think plus 125 or 140. Um, that's that's where I end up settling in. All right, Dissension once again. I think we have a Dissension pretty much on every women's MMA fight. We, we like, uh, Who is your pick again for the... Uh, yeah, we, we're on the same side for what McKenna and Granger. Corey McKenna. Yeah, yeah. So we're on the same side there, but two out of the three women's MMA fights were like, mm, no, nah, well, we, we got one more to go. So let's see how that shakes yeah, out. We got we got we're, one we're, more ahead of us. We got to get the prop going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about uh, Augusto Sakai going up against Sergey Spivak. In terms of odds, we're looking at chalk on the Spivak side. He's currently sitting at minus two eighty plus two thirty five is the return on Augusto Sakai. Uh, Sakai. Has his back against the wall here, right? He came into the UFC with a little bit of hype on him, right? He came into the UFC with a solid uh, 15 and, uh, sorry, it was um, a 11 and 1 record, 11 1 and 1, I should say. Uh, the only loss being to former UFC fighter Czech Congo, and that was a split decision loss as well. Came into the UFC on a on a two fight winning streak, and that included that Dana White contender series when he was able to put together four solid wins over Chase Sherman, Andre Olovsky, Marcin Tabora, and Blagoy Ivanov. Uh, but then has run into some difficult times over his last three fights, losing via fifth round stop to Alistair Overeem back in September of 2020, getting knocked out literally at the last second of the first round against Jerzynia Rosa Strike, and then last time around at UFC 269 in December of 2021, gets knocked out by Tai Tuivasa. 26 seconds into that second round. Now, this is a completely different matchup than those last three guys, right? Uh, maybe we can say closer to what he faced in the last three rounds or the last two rounds of the Alistair Overeem fight where Overeem, you know, outstriking him in those first two rounds kind of, but then really relying on his takedowns, which he was successful with, getting Sky to the ground over and over again, and then eventually finishing him in that fifth round. Jerzinho and Tai Tuivasa were not looking for that approach. They were looking to take his head off they were able to take his head off. Sergey Spivak doesn't fight like that, right? Sergey is going to be looking to get him to the ground. Sergey lands over three takedowns for, per 15 minutes. And in my opinion, the, the, the jury is still out on Sakai's grappling, uh, totally, in my opinion, right? He stuffed two or three takedowns against Blagoy, even off, although one of those included that infamous cage grab in that third round, because if Blagoy got that to the ground, he likely would have rode out that round. I. Uh, and then uh, the Alistair Overeem fight, right? Couldn't stop takedowns there in that fight. But I'm chalking that up to just inexperience in five-round fights. I, I think he very much struggled uh, in terms of portioning out his cardio later in this fight. And then uh, the, the the contender series fight, where he stuffed eight of nine takedowns from his opponent that night. But that guy, God, was he a can. That guy was a can and a half and was absolutely gassed probably two or three minutes into that fight. So... From legitimate guys, I'm not sure, or at least guys of Sergey Spivak's wrestling level, it's hard to tell how uh, Sergey Spivak, or sorry, how Sakai will do. I think Spivak will be able to get him to the ground, but you know, is he going to be working constantly enough to be able to get back to his feet and, and get back to where his advantage is, and that is uh, striking. He's obviously going to have the striking advantage here. I just don't know if he hits hard enough to the point to give 
uh, Sergey Spivak trouble to to make Spivak kind of turtle up the way that he did, like uh, when he fought Tom Aspinall. I think more so we're going to see um, Spivak get the takedowns, grind him out. He could eventually get a TKO finish from on top, but he could take this the full 15 minutes as well. I'm going to go, I'm going to lean more so with the inside the distance here. Uh, Spivak inside the distance is currently minus 120. I think it's going to take him a little bit of time to establish that dominant position on top. But once he does, I think he's going to start raining down shots and get Sakai out of there. So, um, and lastly, on the flip side, Sakai by knockout probably is the only way to win this fight. That currently sits at plus 500. I'm going Spivak by uh, inside the distance at minus 120, though. What are you thinking here? Am I am I jerking off Spivak a little bit too much here, or do you think that Sakai can pull off the upset? Yeah, honestly, I got, I'm going back and forth on this one. Like, I can make a good argument for both sides. I need an underdog. I want an underdog. I feel like this card's screaming for one of these greasy underdogs to come through. And similar to Dante May screwing me last week because it was a bum heavyweight fight, this one kind of has got those vibes to me. Yeah, it's striker versus grappler again. And if Sakai can keep the fight standing, one figures he has a striking advantage. It maybe doesn't knock Spivak out, but if he can stuff the takedowns and keep it up, he'd be good. Now, one thing we forget about... Uh, Augusto Sakai for the most part is that fight versus Alistair Overeem is a five round fight. So if the fight ends after three, Augusto Sakai wins it on two of the three judges' scorecards. He outstruck Alistair Overeem in all three of the first three rounds and then flat gassed out. But that changed him as a fighter. We talked about it earlier, the mentality of it. Once he gassed out to Alistair Overeem, he was like, I'm going to stop exerting myself. He's not the same guy anymore. Against Rosenstruck, he stared at him. He landed three strikes in the first five minutes. Uh, four minutes and 59 seconds as he got knocked out with one second left in the round. Three strikes. He stared at him the whole time, but I give him a pass. It's Rosenstruck. Dude's got killer power. Now he gets a tied to Ivasa fight. Gun shy. Stared there. Didn't land anything. But it's tied to Ivasa. He's got some killer power. Spivak's not that good of a striker. So if he goes out there with the mentality of, I need to pace myself, he's going to lose. But if he goes out there and finally just says, hey, I need to land some shots. I need to win two of these three rounds. I can back up. I'm a big 265-pound man. Keep the, the takedowns in, in check. He went, yeah, he did give up three to Alistair Overeem. And Alistair Overeem only attempted three. It was three for three. And they're like, they're wonky-ass takedowns, dude. Like football tackles. Like basically pull the guy on top of you and then just like shift to the last second like a, like a suicide dive. And uh, he just gets on him and he smashes him. So I got no doubt about it. Sergey Spivak does get these takedowns going, especially early. He's going to maul him on the ground. It's just I could also see Sakai. Like, you know what keeps bugging me that causes me to, like, hesitate? Because otherwise I'm all Sergey Spivak. And then I keep watching back the Alexei Olenek fight where it's like Alexei Olenek is beating this man standing. He can't outstrike Alexei Olenek standing. He needs to rely on getting those takedowns. If they weren't there for him, he'd be in trouble. And, of course, he gets a 45-year-old undersized guy like Olenek, then they should be available for there. But it's not that clean of a fight. Against Tom Aspinall, an actual striker, he gets knocked out. That's generally what happens when he takes on guys that are good strikers, a Walt Harris, a Tom Aspinall, fair. And against Greg Hardy, well, I mean, his wrestling looked good, right? It's going to be the same thing here. If he can get his wrestling going the same way he did against uh, Hardy and keeps Sakai down, then he'll have him. If he can't, if he botches those takedowns, if he stands in front of him, he's going to get chopped up. And the line just seems too wide to me, right? It's a heavyweight fight. It's middling guys. Spivak's fairly one-dimensional in that he needs that takedown to win. And he's like a minus 260, minus 270. Like it just seems, you know, a little bit tad bit for my liking. So uh, I'm trying to zone in. I think it was the over one and a half. Um, That's around minus 120. 
Yeah, yeah. Just because I think when people think heavyweight fights, you, the thought process is generally it's going to end quick. But with Sakai, he's been super gun shy, and all of his fights have been well. I guess you know not when you get knocked out the second line from the first, but uh, for the most part, he, they've been tending to go a little bit longer. You mentioned you, you're not sold on his power, dude. I'm going to agree with you. Look at his pre wins before this losing streak. He went the distance with Andre Arlovsky and arguably robbed Andre Arlovsky getting soundly outstruck by him. He took like uh, 14 minutes to get Chase Sherman out of there. There are certain spots where it's like maybe his power is not as big as I think. So it both leads to me that, you know, Sakai probably on the over. Spivak needs to get that wrestling going, that grind going, break the guy down, probably the over. I'm not sure who's going to win the fight, but I feel like it's going to be someone that wins it later into the second round or into the third. So for that reason, my best play on this one is the over one and a half. Well, one thing I kind of want to dispel in regards to Sergei Spivak is him folding under power. Like his two losses via finish in, in the UFC were his UFC debut against Walt Harris. That's a tough task for anybody, right? Like especially yeah. making a UFC debut in that spot and then getting finished by Tom Aspinall. He does, if he was this guy that people are proclaiming him to be to crack under pressure, he would have lost to Greg Hardy. Greg Hardy is the ultimate guy to not be pressured by, you know, in these big spots. But he, he fought through it got the takedown and just ragdolled him and eventually got him out of there. Right. That's fair, but it comes it comes down to the wrestling. So it's like when he fought Tai Tui Vasa, I thought he was gonna get knocked out, but he goes six for eight in takedowns. And if you watch the fight, there is zero striking exchanges. It is all Sergey Spivak clinching on this guy and pulling him to the ground. He took him down six times, right? Ty just kept getting right back up, but he stuck to that game plan. He avoided striking with them because he was able to get the takedowns. Everybody else, Carlos Felipe is not known for his power. Jared Vander is yep. a putz. Olnick's a submission guy. Craig Hardy, we're back to another situation. It's like, you stand with him, you're going to get knocked out. Three for four on the takedowns. So he's smart enough to know, I don't want to stand with these guys. I need the takedowns. All I'm saying is if he does not get those takedowns, he's probably trending towards getting KO'd. So um, this actually might not be a terrible like live betting spot as well. Like If he goes through I know, an early two, three minutes where he can't get the takedown, he's getting busted up, but he sticks with it. Maybe you get a, a much improved line on him in this minus 270. It's just like the pre-fight. I just got burned on a dirty heavyweight fight, and now the prospect of loading up on Spivak at this price is giving me somewhat similar vibe. So I feel like that is going to be the, my best prop over one and a half. The official play, I think I'm trending towards keeping it Sergey Spivak, but I'm just going to try to be smart about it and uh, maybe keep it reasonable on the list of priorities. There you guys go. And in regards to my question or my guy's question here, Michael, be gambling, breaking down the bees for PFO. Cody, the people are demanding this. He's going to be oh, we gonna wrap after up, we do this. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> as soon as we wrap this up, uh, he'll be jumping on the breaking down the bees for you guys. So stay tuned for that. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. And it's going to be the first of two Ultimate Fighter finales. This one taking place in the women's flyweight division. We got Juliana Miller coming in at minus 125. Brogan Walker coming in at plus 105. Interesting line movement on this fight as well, right? Uh, it was bet online that actually opened up Juliana Miller uh, at plus 140. Immediate action coming in, dropping her down to minus 130, and she's roughly stayed around that line here, uh, and that is what I believe that it's going to end up being once these girls actually throw it down in the cage. Now, Juliana Miller has that relentless grappling style, right? But I bit her, it's bitten her in the ass before. It, most notably, the fight that she had before coming to the UFC against Claire Guthrie, where she's just landing takedowns or actually trying to land takedowns while eating damage the entire time. And the judges actually score for Claire as she's the one being active with dishing out damage while being good enough defensively to not get taken down. We saw Juliana Miller obviously 
fix that in her next fight, which was on the Ultimate Fighter against Claire Guthrie, which was hilarious that they managed to get them to to have that rematch so quickly. But we saw her more successful with the takedowns that night. We saw her be able to get this fight to the ground and you know have ultimate success on top and uh, get that solid decision victory over Claire Guthrie that night or on that show. Then she follows up with that uh, performance against Caitlin Neal, who at the time, five and four, you know, not, not the greatest level of competition. Sure. She can get her down and get a, a Kimura on her and get her down and, and get it over with there on the flip side for Brogan Walker, you know, out of all the women that got onto the ultimate fighter this season, she's got to be the most uh, experienced, right? Win over a Miranda Maverick back in July of 2018. She does have two losses to former UFC fighter, Pearl Gonzalez, uh, and obviously current fighter Aaron Blanchfield. Uh, she did follow that up with a win over Emily King, where she's able to get the first round rear naked choke, and then she had some good performances on the Ultimate Fighter. But she is clearly the better striker in this matchup, right? Juliana Miller, she wants to go with the grappling. Brogan wants to keep this fight standing, and she wants to let her hands go. I think we see good enough takedown defense from Brogan Walker against decent competition to believe that she can keep this fight standing. And then as long as this fight's standing, she should be the one landing the better strikes. She throws with much more conviction than Miller. Miller, she's mainly just putting... Um, you know, putting whatever together with her striking, uh, they don't, it doesn't have much substance or much power behind it. The only uh, goal behind throwing her strike is to close the distance so that she can eventually get the fights to the ground. And I think she's going to struggle to do that here when she's eating counters from the Brogan Walker side of things. So I don't agree that, you know, uh, Brogan Walker should have been a minus 160 favorite on open here, but I do think she should be the slight favorite here. And I think she'll be able to box up Juliana Miller. I don't know if she'll be able to finish her. I think I'm going to go with a decision more than anything, but I think she'll be able to put together a much more body of work with her striking, stop the takedowns, or at least stop enough takedowns and get back to her feet so that she can get back to her striking. Brogan Walker by decision plus 130 over two, uh, well, over two and a half, 425. So I'm not even going to bother matching that, but I'm going to go with Brogan Walker by decision. Well, what are you thinking here? Who who takes the ultimate fighter for the women's flyweights this season? Yeah, I'm thinking I'll go the other side, Juliana Miller. I think I'm going to scoop up her by decision at plus 125, but uh, she's only two and one. She's still got a long way to go. I like what she brings to the table in terms of her tenacity. She's just always biting down. She's always coming forward. She's always letting her hands go. Is it sloppy? Is it is it a work in progress? Yeah, but she's definitely a fighter's fighter. We talk about a lot of these people that are not going to quit on themselves. They're going to keep coming forward. They're going to try to find a way. And to me, in many ways, uh, that's her, right? So I was a fan of her work in Invicta. I thought on the Ultimate Fighter, she was probably, you know, the best-looking prospect for the women's in the house. <clears throat> and then uh, culminating with this fight with Brogan Walker, it's going to be a tough fight, but I think she's going to be able to uh, to win based on that perseverance. Now, yeah, you, you make a great point. Brogan Walker is a better striker. You would say that Millie's better on the ground, so it's going to be uh, another striker versus grappler contest. But <clears throat> again, Brogan Walker is low-key a BJJ black belt as well. It's under her husband, uh, Mike Sanchez. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what biased, you know? Well, sorry, honey, you're not ready. Like, come on, bud. I, I got a wife. I know what those conversations are like. <laughs> so yeah, I like I, I think her jiu-jitsu is there to get you know taken advantage of, but it's not as bad as people suggest it is. Meanwhile, the striking advantage for Brogan Walker, like I do agree that she's bigger, stronger, more physical standing. It's just I honestly think it's that pace. I think Miller coming forward and letting her hands go and just trying to continuously grab a hold of the body lock takedown, continuously try to apply pressure, continuously come forward. I think that kind of pace where Miller seems to thrive in those situations and as cardio, I think Brogan Walker will start to tire so slightly. And when that happens, look for Miller to maybe capitalize. On the ultimate fighter, Brogan Walker's first fight versus Hannah Guy. 
First round, she looks good. Second round, she starts to, to lose the scrambles and eventually gets, gets her back taken by Hannah Guy. One judge gave Hannah Guy that round. Two, unfortunately, didn't agree, and that's why it's a majority decision. But you saw her give up a bad position and end up in a really bad spot two rounds in the fight with someone like Hannah Guy. The way Miller fights, it's so uh, erratic that these scrambles are going to occur and bad positions are going to occur. And I can't imagine what would happen if Miller got in the exact same positions that Hannah Guy got into. So I'm just hoping that that ability to come forward and just let it all go will eventually pay dividends over time. Might be a good live betting situation. So I expect Brogan Walker to be heavy, strong, physical early. And because I'm really hoping that the pace eventually breaks her down and gets to her. So the official pick for me will be a Miller by uh, Miller by decision plus 125. And if you were greasy with it, the Miller by submission plus 500. But I would rather like, if you had a book that gave you props live, I'd love to hit a Miller by dis or uh, by submission prop, you know, after she maybe lost the first round or maybe the second round's going tight, because I think it'd be something that happens once she fatigues her and gets her into that spot. But uh, give me Miller last but not least, like she's not, I think she's 26 years old. So She's not like so young that she she's two and one. Like that's that's the problem that gets me. Yeah. But at 26, I think she's old enough. She's got enough jujitsu experience. She's got very good grappling credentials outside of MMA. Um, and she just picked up another couple fights on the Ultimate Fighter that are exhibition. So I'm just hoping all of that leads to she's not as as inexperienced as some people believe, and it's enough to go out there and get a, a big UFC debut win because it obviously carries that Ultimate Fighter plaque with it. I like it. Uh, my guy, Mr. Always Profit here, asking if I'm betting on Priscilla, why am I taking the Brogan side? Is it because one is plus money and the Miller is a favorite? Uh, just to reiterate, I I'm betting on Priscilla Cachoeira plus 115. I am picking Brogan Sanchez, but I'm not actually making the uh, an official bet on her in this spot. It's more so of a, a show-me spot. I think her striking is good enough to get it done. I think her defensive grappling should be good enough to kind of stifle whatever Miller brings to the table, but it's not to the point where I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is on that matchup. All right. Let's move on to the next Ultimate Fighter finale that we have here, and it's in the heavyweight division. We got Zach Palga going up against Mohamed Usman. In terms of odds, we're currently looking at minus. Uh, it is vanished now. Where'd it go? Oh, there it is. Minus 250 on Zach Palga, plus 210 the return on Mohamed Usman. Now, Zach Palga is one of those guys that will more than likely drop back down to light heavyweight after he wins the ultimate fighter this week as we see almost every single season of the ultimate fighter you know guys don't mind fighting up a weight class knowing that they're usually you know their skill level will more than likely make up for that gap in weight between him and his opponents and to this point it's worked out for zach palga heck it doesn't suck that his main training partner is curtis blaze right like he's sharing the training room with curtis blaze on a regular uh, basis. I remember when I had Cody Donovan on my show uh, a couple months ago, uh, he had made the trip down to Austin to go down to a, a, a famed BJ gym down there. I can't recall which one it was. And I'm like, Oh, who'd you, who'd you go with? He goes, Oh, I got, uh, I got Curtis blades with me, you know, getting ready for this Tom Aspinall fight. And then I got my guy, Zach Pauga. I'm like, Hmm, Zach Pauga sounds familiar. Is he not the guy that's currently on the ultimate fighter? And he just gave me this look of like, Hmm, Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. Who knows? Maybe. Like, maybe. I, I wonder why you're taking him on this business trip with you because you probably want him to go out there and get his BJJ taken care of. And I'm glad that they are, right? Like the guy, the guy looks good. The, the guy seems like he could be a solid prospect in the UFC's light heavyweight division. He has cardio. He has wrestling. He has good striking. Like the guy pretty much has it all. I haven't really seen much of a flaw in his game. Uh, you know, in this fight against Mohamed Usman, don't expect... Kamaru Usman type fighting from Mohamed Usman, right? He's a he's a he's a striker 
with not too much power on his strikes. Doesn't mind, you know, going the distance if he needs to, uh, as long as he can fight a fight at his pace. Because we saw in his last PFL fight, I believe it was his last fight, before he ended up making it into the house, where his cardio failed him because Brandon Sales was putting it on him. He was putting pressure on him, and he was forcing uh, Mohamed Usman to gas out. And I think that Palga could do the exact same thing here. To stay busy with either takedowns, with... Uh, you know, the level changes with combinations, with clinch work, keep on the gas tank of uh, Mohamed Usman here. And I think he can wear him out and eventually get him out of here later in this spot. Um, I- I'm going to go Palga. I'm going to go Palga by decision. Again, this is only a three-round fight. Palga by decision currently sits at plus 155. Uh, again, both these guys, even though they're, you know, big boys, they're not too reliant on finishes. They are completely fine with going the full 15 minutes if they need to and get a decision victory. Both of them have, you know, a handful of decision victories on their record as well. Uh, I'm going to lean on the Palga side. I get why he is the chalk, uh, just simply based on the fact that he's still only 5-0 and as a professional. I get it. Mohamed Usman, not that much more experience with nine uh, professional MMA fights still got to be a little bit skeptical in terms of what if there is a hole in his game that Usman's able to 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 showcase that other guys have not been able to I will say this out of both of them the best win between them is Zach Palgo against Marcus Perez and that was a, a decent fight for him right showed off why he is the better fighter that night grappling takedowns striking all that Zach Palga has it all before I pass it on over to you, Cody, there is actually a cloud bet prop for this one. There's two of them. So first of which, a number of times brother is said by the commentary team from the walkout to the interview in regards to Kamaru Usman. They have it set at over under two and a half. What are you thinking? How many times do you think they mentioned brother? Not, not saying Kamaru, but say the word brother from his walkout to the moment that they interview the winner. Over yeah, over, over, over two and a half <laughs> seems like a straight off lock. Listen, okay, think about it. It's it, you could get three in the same sentence if you <laughs> wanted know. to, right? And and the best part is if he's getting his ass whooped, it's gonna be like, well, there's a lot of pressure because he's Kamaru Uzan's brother. And if he's winning, it's gonna be like, well, you know, it's Kamaru Uzan's brother. So it's like it's coming up for sure. Two and a half seems like a very generously low line, and even though it's probably like reaffirmed them, like. Okay, people know it's been, you know, they're going to play it in the pack. The pack doesn't count because it's everything after the walkout, right? Correct. So they're going to mention it a few times in the pack. So it's like they're going to get it out of the way a few times. But it's it, it's everything. It's the only reason the guy made it on the Ultimate Fighter <laughs> yeah. in the first place. It's the only reason they gifted him that win over Eduardo Perez on the show. Like, like he's 33 years old. He's by no means a prospect. He's Kamaru Usman's brother. That will surely be brought up. Over two over, and a half times. <laughs> over two and a half is plus 120, surprisingly, on Cloudbet. So if you guys want to hop I'm on Cloudbet, again, link is in the description below. You guys can hop on the over two and a half. And then secondly, then you can go into your breakdown for this fight. Uh, over under successful takedowns from Mohamed Usman. Over one and a half is minus 112. Under one and a half is minus 109. What do you think? Well, I'm conflicted on this because that's where Usman's uh, advantage of this fight does lie. He is a better wrestler. He could get the fight to the ground if he wanted. But the problem is, and you outlined it, he gasses against Brandon Sales and he gassed hard against Dante Mays, of all people, in a, his only other prior loss. He does get a problem with gassing. And for that reason, he doesn't wrestle all that much. It's as if he's trying to uh, conserve it himself. Like a Tyron Woodley. I can wrestle. But I understand I don't have the cardio to wrestle, so I'm just going to play this super low-paced game and try to land some counter on you. Uh, against Pauga, I would think that the game plan is not go and wrestle him because the guy trains at Curtis Blades. He trains at elevation as well. He's got good cardio. If you try to wrestle him early, he's uh, I think it's just going to gas him out. And so for that reason, I think it's going to be the under. 
of it. And then uh, in terms of an actual uh, prediction here, like what are you thinking? Yeah, I'm going to go with Zach Pauga as well. Even though he's the 205er, he looks like the legitimate prospect of the two, undefeated as an amateur, undefeated as a pro. Both of his wins on the Ultimate Fighter were very quality wins, not necessarily. I mean, the guys were good for what was in the house this season, I suppose, yeah. but he doesn't get hit at all. Like He just completely ran right through them. So he appears to be a legitimate prospect. Kamara Uzman, or uh, Uzman, meanwhile, um, he, to me, he's already a busted prospect. Like when he lost that fight to Dante Mays, Dante Mays was six foot six boxer, right? This guy's a former wrestling standout, a football standout, a great athlete. Uzman's brother, you know, Uzman's known for his wrestling and his cardio. And yet, Muhammad, those are like his two character flaws. Uh, or, well, uh, he can wrestle, sure, but the cardio lets him up, and for that reason, he doesn't wrestle. So with Kamaro, you expect him to wrestle, 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 and do it for 25 hard minutes. With Muhammad, it's like he can wrestle a little bit, but then he gasses out. And if you don't have the cardio to do it, it's just not effective. So he looked bad against Mays because it was a tailor-made matchup. The fight with the Brandon Sales, for the record, Brandon Sales was 41 years old, competing out of the Georgian regional scene where he had basically accumulated nothing in terms of experience. Huge underdog, and yet all he had to do was survive the first five minutes. When you saw him against Eduardo Perez on on tough, Perez actually didn't look terrible himself. But uh, you know, it's just it's not a, it's not a clean victory. I feel like Pauga is going to go out there, hustle him up, tire him out, take over the longer the fight goes, and eventually just uh, beat him in route to a decision or maybe like a late greasy stoppage if Muhammad Usman tends to get very tired. So got to go with Zach Pauga. But that's why tape research is like so important because if you and I were sitting in a bar having a beer and we seen these two guys arguing at the table, I'd be like. <laughs> You can have that guy. I'm taking Usman. <laughs> yeah. In reality, it's like, yeah, yeah, looks, looks are deceiving. The pudgy guy at heavyweight, he's a badass. And when he goes down to 205, he'll be better suited for 205. I think he'll be okay. Uh, he's 34 years old, which is like, you know, old for a prospect, a guy that's only got a handful of fights professionally. But um, it seems like he trains at a good level. He's in good shape. He doesn't got a bunch of injuries. And at, at a heavier weight class, is, you can live a lot longer. I like it. And big uh, comment here from my guys. Scott Ticks is smash the likes, eh? Come on, guys. We got 160 of you guys in this uh, live chat right now and only 50 likes. Y'all can do better than that. Let's hit that uh, three-digit likes mark. If you guys haven't already, please do it. That like best way to show you guys some support. All right. Let's move on to the Coleman event here. And I'm glad they rejigged the card the way that they did because the first iteration of this main card I saw was the Zach Pauga and Usman fight as the Coleman event. But they are giving Jeff Neal and Vicente Luque the respect they deserve by putting them into the Coleman event. They probably could be even main event material as well, let's be honest. In terms of odds, we're looking at uh, the favorite, uh, Vicente Luque, coming in at minus 180, plus 155 is the return on Jeff Neal. Very, very fun fight here. As soon as this fight was matched up, I was like, ooh, good God, I got to circle this one because it's going to be uh, a barn burner for sure. Vicente Luque, it's like he can't do anything other than being a barn burner unless he's getting held down by Bilal Muhammad. Right, uh, Vicente Luque let down a lot of people last time around, but that just goes to show how much Bilal Muhammad is truly improving. Right, he's taken the Colby Covington and Kamaru Usman way to the title in terms of wrestle heavy and cardio, and it's worked out for him. Um, now, Vicente Luque, I don't want to say that he's on a decline at all, but it seems like the performances that he's had earlier in his career were a lot more dominant than the ones that he's having at this point in his career. The Michael Chiesa fight. Impressive the way that he was able to lock up that submission and, and, and take that dart stroke home with him. But I feel like if he's not able to get much of his submission game going, 
he could struggle against guys that are able to, you know, strike competitively with him. And I think people are forgetting about who Jeff Neal actually is, right? You're talking about a guy that was a pick'em against Wonderboy Thompson because there's so much goddamn hype on him. He gets completely outstruck and nullified that night. Then he goes out there and fights um, Neil Magny, who, if you can't grapple that guy into the mat, you are going to struggle with him on the feet because he puts on awkward pressure. He has an awkward style. Uh, he doesn't fight conventionally either. And that pace that he pushes on his opponents are very difficult for a lot of people to keep up with. So then we see him get a little bit more of a favorable matchup against Santiago Ponzinibbio in a fight where he still ends up being the underdog. Of course, I'm going to take advantage of that. Close fight. Could have been could have gone either way. But obviously, Jeff Neal gets his hand raised that night. Now you're getting Vicente Luque, right? A guy that is willing to get hit. I think he has a negative like strikes absorbed to strikes thrown ratio just because of how much he's gotten hit in the past. I think Jeff Neal does as well, but I think a lot of that has to do with the Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight where Wonderboy almost tripled him up, even more than tripled him up on strikes that night. And that was a five-round fight. But every other fight, more often than not, Jeff Neal is outstriking his opponents. We forget how technically sound Jeff Neal is on the feet. We forget how much power that he holds in his hands. And I get it. Vicente Luque has an ironclad shin. Very hard to put this guy away. But at a certain point, it's going to come to a crashing point where he eventually, you know, that chin cracks. Not saying it's going to be this weekend, but I don't think he wears damage that well. And that's why I think that Jeff Neal is very live in this spot to go out there and pull off the upset. Let's not forget that this guy, Vicente Luque, this phenomenal fighter, who I believe is a, a top-level fighter, he went to a split decision with Mike Perry in a fight that will likely play out similarly to this one, where they're going to go go out there, they're going to throw down. Obviously, Jeff Neal, much cleaner than Mike Perry, um, and I think he could land much more significant strikes than uh, than Vicente Luque in this, or sorry, much more effective strikes. I think the output will likely be on the Vicente Luque side. I can't argue that, but I'm hoping that the more effective and damaging strikes are coming from the Jeff Neal side here. I do see this going the full 15 minutes, so fight goes to decision at plus 120 is not a bad spot. But if you want to get even cuter with it, Jeff Neal to win by decision is currently sitting at plus 400. I'm hoping he has shored up all those heart condition issues that he had going into the the Wonderboy Thompson fight. Hopefully he has everything back in a row now and, and he can focus on continuing his climb up the welterweight division. And I think he can do it here against Vicente Luque because that'll be a very big one for him if he's able to do so. So give me Jeff Neal. Jeff Neal by decision. Uh, yeah, plus 400. I like it. What are you thinking here? Am I, am I giving Jeff Neal too much credit? It honestly, it's not a bold pick. Uh, the decision, I think, is bold. Like, you think he's gonna? You don't think he's gonna knock him out if he wins? Like, I think he can win. I think he, he needs could to knock, knock him out. He could, I think but he knock him out. Um, I, I don't know. Jeff Neal at his best has got a ton of power. Like, you go back through his resume, and he's defeated some good guys. But you know, you talk about the Mike Perry win. It's three years ago, and since then, he just hasn't looked all that good. The Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight. I'll give him a pass that because of the way Wonderboy fights. But like, it's a five round fight, and he's checked out after three. Like, he's tapping Wonderboy on the back after the round and being like, "Good win, man. You won." Like, he, he's 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 he's. It's basically accepted the fact that I just can't catch this guy. And his coaches are like drilling it into him. Like Jeff, get going, let your hands go. And he just seemed like he had checked out of that fight, which is fine. It's wonder boy. I'll give you a pass. The next fight with Neil Magny. So people will look at, Oh, well, Neil Magny is a grappler. Neil Magny took him down twice. Jeff Neil took him down once. Neil Magny got a minute and 40 of control time. Jeff Neil got almost four minutes of control time. He was the one that spent time on top in the grappling exchanges. It was standing. He didn't do anything. He just, it's low output. He allowed Neil, Neil Magny to outwork him. And as a result, 30-27 on one of the judges' scorecards, more realistically, probably a 29-28. 
But uh, he just let himself get out work. So now you got the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight. This is do or die. This would be a huge moment because prior to fighting Stephen Thompson in a, in a five-round fight, they were talking about him fighting for a world title. So that was a huge moment let down. Now you take on a journeyman, you know, top fringe top 10 guy, maybe a top 15 guy like Neil Magny. He beats you. That's a big setback. So think about the mindset going into this fight with Santiago Ponzinibbio on December 11th, 2021. It would be an absolute do or die, right? And yet, like 10 days before the fight, he got arrested for a, a yeah. drink while un under the influence, a DUI, and he's got a fucking handgun in the car. So it's like, dude, like, what's the mindset at? And then furthermore, the fight, it's close. You can score for Neil one and three. You could give it to Ponzinibbio one and two. Reason why it's a split. He got outstruck in two of the three rounds. It's very close. It could have gone either way. It's a good fight. And, you know, Ponzinibbio is a guy that maybe has some durability issues of his own these days, was known as a badass back in the day, but has had some health problems and this and that. All I'm saying is it wasn't a clean win. He got outstruck. He squeaked out with a split, de uh, a split decision and it left some to the imagination. So now you talk about he's had heart issues. He said he never came back. He had like COVID and it like wrecked his lungs or something. He looked very uninterested against Stephen Thompson. He batted a straight up egg against Neil Magny. He gets a DUI like a week before his fight. Like that's bad optics, no? Um, regardless if you had one, I, you know, it's Thanksgiving. Fuck it. You probably had a drink and got pulled over. No big deal. I'm probably overthinking it. I just mean, it's all bad timing shit. Right. And now you got to go there and take out Vincente Luque. So we're banking on, well, he's got this huge power and he's got this and that, but like how many guys, how many chaos Williamses, how many, uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassans, how many guys come in, show off this huge power. And then just some point, you know, you start fighting better competition. You can't rely on just big power. You need more. You need to be able to wrestle. You need to be able to cut off the cage. You need to be able to fight five rounds. You need to be able to make adjustments. And Neil just doesn't seem like he's made those adjustments. So I fully agree. He's more durable than Luke and he has more firepower than Luke. And if Luke stands in front of him and brawls, which he pretty much always does, he's going to make things difficult on himself. But I think he's got the speed advantage. I think he's got the volume. And I think uh, that he's just going to, you know, outwork him ever so slightly. Small cage, you know, it's going to be violence. There's going to be a lot of action. But if Neil doesn't keep his foot on the gas the entire time, I think I just feel like Vincente Luque is going to pull away. And uh, for Vincente, yeah, it's a close fight against Mike Perry. And it was actually a close fight against Brian Barbarena, if you remember that yeah. one. Like, woof. Yeah. So, yeah, he fights to his opponent's level, which is bad. But more often than not, it's like, you know, he he does eventually break through and thrive in these situations. Bad start against Tyron Woodley came back. Bad start against Michael Chiesa comes back. Blah Muhammad draws up a blueprint. This is how you beat him. Five takedowns, pure domination, pure control. Even his striking, Blah Muhammad's striking looked good that night because the threat of the takedown was there all night. So the, that's the way to beat Vincente Luque. But in no, I just don't think Jeff Neal's coming in with a wrestling head game plan is all. So uh, I got to go the other side. I got to go Luque. I, you got Luke or you got Neil by decision. I got Luke by decision. My reasoning is Jeff Neil's legit tough. He's terrible. I think that he takes Luke's best shots. If I was going to take the Neil side, dude does hit hard. Like, I don't know that Luke is going to take his best shots. I'm just hoping he invades, stays out of range for the most part. You know how that guy fights, but the volume, the volume is what would have to take over down the stretch. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up the Barbarino fight as well because I, I just quickly looked it up. Um, Barbarino actually was up on the scorecards before getting finished. Like, if yeah, he had yeah. gutted it out, you would have beaten uh, Vicente Luque that night. I, I had bet Vincente Luque quite heavy that night because, like, in what world is he going to lose to Brian Barbarena? Know, right? But, and, and this is the thing Fucking people MMA. that fight Brian Barbarena should know who's going to take the guy down. Guys that don't take him down are in these greasy ass fights with him. Don't do that. But Vincente's about chasing the bonus. It's not good on the brain, but, I mean, he likes to chase the bonus. 
Um, and, I, and I thought, you know what, the Brian Barberina fight, the Mike Perry fight, this guy's not going to realize his true potential. I bet heavy against him against Stephen Thompson. He's not there. You know, uh, the Vincente, the Nico Price fight, if you remember that, he took a ton of damage in that one too. He is a defensive liability. And then he would look good against Ra uh, Randy Brown. Tyron Woodley, I guess, kind of had him in a bad spot briefly for like a couple seconds. Michael Chiesa, he got him down, right? So maybe there's some spots here and there, but it just feels to me like they've they've really got this guy coming along. He's still only 30 years old. He's an excellent fighter, and uh, it's a perfect way to segment into the main event. This motherfucker's got a knockout win over Tiago Santos, right? So <laughs> he's a badass. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's hilarious to think that uh, Tiago Santos is actually down at that weight class now as a towering 205 who's actually main eventing this card as well. So, uh, interesting nugget there from Cody. All right, let's get to the main event here. But first, shout out to the 180 live viewers that we currently have with us on this Thursday afternoon. Appreciate you guys. Make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe below. Let's get to the three digits for, for the likes if we can. Secondly, uh, I've heard the, the qualms and the complaints in regards to having way too many Google ads during the podcast. Uh, I'm doing my best in terms of getting the guys on the All-Star to trim down the amount of ads that, that they actually put on the show. But once they do, you guys will have a much more pleasurable experience, especially uh, if you guys are watching this on a replay. All right, once again, shout out to betonline.ag as well for sponsoring the show. Make sure you guys check out the link in the description below. They'll match your initial deposit up to 1000 bucks. Best book out there in terms of MMA regional, or sorry, regional MMA and uh, getting props and uh, odds first for all UFC fights. And then shout out to CloudBet as well, who has a special prop for this uh, main event slot as well, but as well as many other great event-based props that you guys can bet on if you guys use CloudBet. Link in the description below. All right, let's get right into this main event here. We got minus 300 on Jamal Hill, plus 250 on Tiago Santos. Big spot for Jamal Hill to go out there and beat a guy in Tiago Santos who, you know, he's like championship gatekeeper now, right? Like he is that guy that once you get past Tiago Santos, likely you'll find yourself, uh, you know, at least in a number one contender fight or even a title shot uh, out there, right? Light heavyweight, a little bit weird right now. We don't know what's happening with Glover and Yuri. Michael Madon Kalav just had a big win over Anthony Smith this past week. Jamal Hill is going to try to go out there and stake his claim for a title shot, but he's going to need to do something impressive against Tiago Santos here. Now, my 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 qualm now i'm picking jamal hill it's without a doubt i'm picking jamal hill here but my qualm with a lot of the community is everybody thinks he's going to go out there and just starch tiago santos right off the bat david branch did that four or five years ago. i get it that was one of the more surprising ones of all time right nobody expected david branch to get that knockout and even tiago santos i think that's what caught him off guard in terms of getting clipped by a big shot by david branch which is why he went out there he's fully expecting jamal hill to come in here and try to take his head off but Jamal Hill is going to be very, very difficult to deal with, uh, or sorry, uh, will find it difficult in terms of closing that distance and getting his strikes off because of Tiago Santos's ability to counter guys. Now, hopefully he has a little bit more confidence in himself, especially with his back against the wall, right? He's looked very abysmal over his last couple of fights. You know, even the Johnny Walker win, that was an abysmal performance because we didn't get anything out of Johnny Walker. But the guys that Jamal Hill is going out there and just deading and stiffing, are guys that already have durability issues, right? You got uh, Johnny Walker, puts him on skates, puts him out. We know Johnny Walker is br pretty fragile. Jimmy Crute, you know, that was a big win for him there, but we know that the the difference in terms of um, striking is gigantic as well between Jimmy Crute and Thiago Santos. So I do like 
um, held to get the KO eventually. I think at maybe the second or third round, he'll probably he'll probably be able to put together a solid uh, body of work with body work, like going to the body, trying to slow down Tiago Santos, and then eventually go to the head and start, you know, uh, pummeling him there. I think this is going to look more so like the Ovin same proof fight where he just slowly chips away at him and then eventually gets him out of there with an accumulative combination of getting him knocked out. But like Tiago Santos is live to hurt him as well. You know, we saw, uh, I believe it was over in St. Pru who had tremendous leg kicking success against uh, Jamal Hill. What if Tiago Santos goes out there and just starts chipping away at the leg? Who knows how much that's going to affect Jamal Hill's power going forward? Um, and the counters of Tiago Santos. The one thing I don't like from Jamal Hill's game is his chin just right up in the air every time he's throwing his strikes because anybody that can counter that effectively will be able to knock him out, in my opinion. And we know the last thing to go for any fighter is power. Tiago Santos is up there in age. I think he's about to crack 40 uh, in the next year or two. But the last thing to go is power. If he can clip Jamal Hill, he can crash a lot of tickets here. But I think that Jamal Hill's physique, uh, physique, you know, his range and his height and all that helps him stay out of danger in those spots. Tiago Santos just needs to step forward with that counter and he could possibly land on that highly exposed chin of Jamal Hill and put him out as well. But you don't have age in your favor if you're back in the Tiago Santos side. You're not having momentum on your side either, especially with that confidence that Jamal Hill currently has, which is why ultimately I'll still go on the Jamal Hill side. Jamal Hill by TKO won't look too bad either, which is currently sitting at minus 165. Maybe even the under three and a half at minus 250. If you have access to alternate odds, I don't think that would be a bad way to go about it. But even at CloudBet, you guys get a special prop here that you guys can bet on. And I'm going to pass this over to you, Cody. Um, and then you can take over with your breakdown. But uh, over under 59 and a half significant strikes for Jamal Hill. What are you thinking? Over under. I'm going to take the over. Ah, yeah, I'm going to take the over. I'll be right there as well. Uh, so go ahead, break down this fight, man. What what props are you liking? What do you think gets their hand raise? What are your thoughts on the odds? Well, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah, from the odds, listen, I got I got Jamal Hill as the favorite. He's uh, over three to one favorite. Do that. Do I like that part of it? No, no. I get it's a it's a light heavyweight banger, and Tiago Santos has got a lot of power. Like I get all that, so I'd prefer a better money line, but I ain't gonna get it. So now you try to attack it from a prop standpoint. And the logical prop would be you know the over on rounds, the over the over two and a half. That's looked probably the best spot. But beyond that, yeah, maybe he gets an over three and a half. Maybe he gets an over four and a half. Maybe he'll win. Maybe he'll win by decision. Maybe that's the way you look at it. But uh, again, I'm a guy that re relies on what does my gut instinct tell me at the very bottom line end of the day. And the end of the day is I think he does not go Tiago Santos. So I know what your point being, you know, no one expected Dave Branch. And if you remember UFC 200 with Gegard Mousasi, like he trips him to the ground and like smacked him once in the face and Tiago just went limp. It was like, oh, maybe this guy doesn't have a great chin. Jack Marshman, Jack Marshman dropped Tiago Santos when they fought. So I've always low key thought his chin wasn't all that good. And then the dude ends up in a fight with John Jones, which is crazy. And, you know, I thought he lost pretty much every single round, but some judge gave him one of the rounds and that was a huge moment for him. And then you remember because the fight ends and right away, dude's in a wheelchair with gauze around both knees. Turns out he wrecks both knees. We're talking ACL, meniscus, uh, MCL, everything is shredded in both knees. He has like major surgery. 
he takes off the better part of a year and a half, right? And I just haven't really thought he was all that good since then. He rocked Glover on a couple of occasions, but then Glover would just fall on top of him, and he had no game off of his back, and he fatigued rather quickly before getting finished in that one. Against Alexander Rakic, it's super low volume. Nothing really happens. I'm not saying Rakic did a whole lot in that spot, but Thiago Santos was a guy with big power. He was a guy that brought the fight to you. If you remember him versus John Jones, it's him coming forward and attempting to fight. But in the Rakic fight, it's very much he doesn't have the mobility in his legs anymore, so he stays very stationary. So they give the Johnny Walker fight. This is a gift from the gods. In what world exists that Johnny Walker versus Thiago Santos could ever be a bad fight, right? But it's a terrible fight, man. Thiago Santos stares at him the whole time. And it's not as if he wins convincingly. He wins, but nothing happens. He lands 19 kicks to the leg, 14 kicks to the body. So it's more than half of his offense in that fight is from kicks. He just stands to the outside and he just throws a few kicks. Nine strikes to the head he landed through 25 minutes. 25 minutes. But John Kavanaugh's giving Johnny Walker the worst advice ever. Like, the faints will win you the fight. It's like, no, <laughs> your fighting wins you the damn it. But I had Tiago Santos, I didn't give a shit. But it was a really bad fight. And then you get Magomed and Kalaya, of which. Take the knockdown off the table for Thiago Santos. Uh, he does nothing in the fight. He backs up the entire time. He never lets his hand go. And then you give him that one moment, that one glimpse, that one you just clipped the guy and you dropped him. You caught him you know, with his pants down. Now's the time to capitalize and do something. He doesn't. He doesn't pounce. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there and waits as if the moment's just going to come back to him. It's not. You need more work rate. So now he's like, you know, late 30s. He's married to Yannis Kunitskaya. He's got bad knees. His mobility's shot. Doesn't have the cardio to let his hands go. And you've seen him in back-to-back 25-minute -back fights. And he's combined for 104 significant strikes landed over the course of 50 minutes. In the last 50 minutes, he's landed 100 strikes, which means he's averaging about two strikes landed per minute, which is just way too low. Now, when you look at his last number of opponents, Magomed and Kalayev, uh, is orthodox. Johnny Walker's a switch stance, more comfortable as an orthodox. Alexander Rakic is an orthodox. Glover Teixeira is orthodox. John Jones is a bit of a switch stance guy too, but he, he is actually orthodox. Jan Blakovic, Jimmy Manwood, these guys are all orthodox. Now he's got like a nasty southpaw with a straight left down the pipe. I feel like Hill's going to use the, the inside low kicks, the outside low kicks to just find that range, find that range, and then shoot a straight left hand down the pipe. The advantage for Thiago Santos, as you mentioned, he probably relies heavily on those kicks in this fight. And I agree because he's been kicking mo more than anything lately. And because it's orthodox versus southpaw, maybe he's just going to drill that lead leg. It would be an option for him. But as he's trying to throw that leg kick and catch Hill off balance, that's when Hill's going to snipe him with the counter left. So I just got a feeling that something sneaks through, hurts him, and uh, puts him on skates. But for the most part, Hill's been showing quick finishes, but he's okay with fighting into later rounds. And Thiago Santos has been mostly fighting into later rounds simply by virtue of him not throwing anything and his opponents not throwing anything. But it's going to catch up to him. So I have I don't think he's looked good. I didn't think he looked good in the John Jones fight, if we're being honest with each other. But I don't think he's looked good probably since about the first two months of 2019. And since then, he's had major knee surgeries, a bad losing streak. He's getting older. He's a lot slower. The power, you know, he knocked Ankalaev down. That's got to count for something. <clears throat> but it was just like one moment over the course of 25 minutes. It's just not enough. So I think he'll pieces him up and gets the job done. Uh, the favorite prop being the over two and a half. And I just fingers crossed that Hill doesn't look so good that he takes him out before that. I think he'll minus P's and Q's early because of the reputation of Thiago Santos. But eventually he's going to find that money shot.
yeah, we're we're going to need to see a change in urgency from Thiago Santos to truly have success in this fight. Honestly, uh, another interesting thing to to bring up about Jamal Hill in his fourth ever professional MMA fight, he had a five round fight against nineteen and seven at the time, Daquan Townsend. Now, again, Townsend not the greatest fighter, but to be fighting a guy that experienced in only your fourth MMA fight or fourth professional MMA fight, you know, uh, you know, big, big uh, ceiling for Jamal Hill to, to be fighting for a title that early in his career. And he's made the most of it, right? His only other uh, slip up to this point was that Paul Craig fight. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a big things ahead for Jamal Hill. I'm hoping the event make Jamal Hill versus Magomed Ankalaev but we'll see how that goes. He has to get past Tiago Santos this weekend first. All right. Let's not waste any more time. We got a couple more things to get through here in regards to the cloud bet best props or uh, event props that they have for us here. So let me just pull that up on the screen. Uh, first of which we got the Dana White contender series alum victories. We got uh, Corey McKenna, Josh Quinlan and um, Terrence McKenney here. One, two or three or zero of them off the victory what are you thinking here cody tough alumni well i'm taking Corey mckenna i am taking quinlan and i am taking mckinney so i would say three with a plus 140 not a terrible price tag i do actually have to get them to update that because jamal hill was a dana white contender series alum as well so they should actually have four yeah yeah and according yeah. to him the best dana white contender yes. series alumni of all time which yeah. it, he's probably right about that um uh, but i like how shot o'malley's all What's your version of success? <laughs> I got way more money than you. Am I not the exactly. most successful? Like, it's funny, right? There's badass fighters and there's salesman guys, right? Yeah. But it's all about, I don't know, what you want your legacy to be. But Hill's a badass. They should update it because if they don't, uh, well, then I would have to get it to four. <laughs> I would need one of them to lose <laughs> to hit my three at plus 140. There you go. All right. Uh, we already talked about the Jamal Hill significant strikes. Fastest finish on the main card. What are you thinking here, my friend? Fastest finish on the main card. Well, for me personally, I would have to go with Hill again by virtue of I think he's one of the guys that gets the stoppage. I know for you, it would make a, probably a lot of sense to take Jeff Neal because, I mean, we figure that these guys are going to probably be in striking battles. Maybe they get the finish. Um, yeah, okay. Officially, I think I would I would, I would, would take Hill I would, of these options here. I, I think it'll maybe be Sergei Spivak. If he can get his grappling going ASAP, I think he can find a, a TKO quickly here over uh, over fucking whatever his name is. That's just a guy. Uh, plus 1,300 got me tempted, but that's the problem with this line. I'm always like, Spivak, and that is it. And then I see the line, I'm like, yeah, but. It just keeps getting. Now I'm looking at plus 1,300. It's a con. Wow, the guy's a banger. But no, no, no. We're keeping with Spivak. So I'll take Hill, you take Spivak. Yeah, or, or we might get Tiago Santos cashing that off of an injury TKO win. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. All right, uh, next one here, uh, UFC Brazilian performance. So this is, again, 25 points for a stoppage win, 10 points for a decision, zero for uh, uh, losing, obviously. I believe it's six fighters here that they're going to be having, uh, and it's over under 43 and a half. Is it six fighters? Are there six Brazilians on this card? There are... Our boy Nook Silva, Ariane Lipsky, and Cash Ware. So, uh, does that one cancel each other out? Augusto Sakai. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Santos. I would think it does cancel itself so it, out. It, it is included, though. There's six fighters, so it is included. So, no matter what, you're getting at least 10 points in the Lipsky and Cash Ware fight, maybe 25 if one of them gets the wins. But what are you thinking here? Over, under uh, 43 and a half. 
Uh, I'm thinking the under. You get nothing for a loss, right? So let's say Tiago right. Santos gets nothing, which is what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I got Vincente Luque. I know you don't, but like he's not. I don't think he's finishing, so he's getting ten points. Yep. And then Augusto Sakai. Losing. We're both taking Spivak. So if, if if that train of thought is accurate, and he loses, he's getting nothing. Lipsky versus Cachoeira. One of them's a guaranteed winner, although yeah. it's probably going to the scorecards, which would get you ten. If you yep. got a finish in that fight, you would get twenty five, but. With a Luque decision, you're still only sitting at 35, and you would need a Morena Bueno Silva decision win puts you at 45, which means the under still hit, right? Because it's 45 and a half? Yep. Yeah. Four, so four, the, sorry, 43 and a half. 43 oh, it's 43 and a half. Yeah, okay, so that changes close. things a little bit. Yeah, so if you get if you were to get the underdog win of Marina Bueno Silva and got 10 out of that, you're guaranteed at least 10 out of Lipsy versus Cachoeira, but you're, you would rely on getting a finish there. Nah, I'm hitting the under. That's an under bet for me. Only Brazilian I actually like on the card is Vincente Luque. And I am picking Lipsky and Moreno Bueno Silva. But I think we can all agree that those are like low-end, 50-50, greasy. We don't even agree on both of them. you got Edgar and you've got exactly. Cachoeira, right? So like how much confidence do I got there? Not a yeah. ton. Yeah, I agree. I think for the majority, most of those Brazilians lose. And uh, even if they win, they're likely winning by decision. So uh, I don't think they come close to that 43 and a half. I'll go with the under there as well. Fight of the night. What are you thinking here, my friend? Fight of the night. Uh, for the record, did I hit it last week? I had the Dober fight, but... Um, no, it was... Uh, I know. I felt like I got robbed from it again. It could have. You know, you could have gotten it. Son of a bitch. I'm yeah, going to go with yeah. uh, Cashware and Lipsky plus 900. I think with the way Cachoeira fights, we could get some uh, some violence here. And she is fighting the queen of violence. So she might have to take that crown from the queen should she go out there and finish her. But uh, I'm expecting that to be a violent fight. Plus 900, sign me up. Fight of the night, I am going to go with uh, Brogan Walker versus Miller. I know, I know, I know. It's a super sleeper pick at plus 1,600. But if you've seen Miller fight, I mean, she throws down. And if you've seen Brogan Walker fight, yeah, like she's she's actually a pretty entertaining fighter. I think it'll be a scrap. Both girls got a lot of invested interest, being that it's a tough final. And uh, this card doesn't really scream a whole lot of, like, fight of the nights to me, like, Terrence McKinney wrecks him, let's say. So that's not a fight of the night. Sergey Spivak versus Sakai could be a greasy heavyweight fight, which if if we, you and I are, we are accurate with Spivak just gets the takedowns, it's not going to be a fight of the night, right? Miranda Granger versus Corey McKenna. She's going to be looking to hold on for dear life, so not a fight of the night. Bueno Silva versus Stephanie Egger. I can't imagine that's that thrilling. You're not far off. The way Cachoeira fights, you know, she's live for it. If Quinlan dead's wit, it's not going to be a fight of the night. If Witt holds Quinlan down, it ain't going to be a fight of the night. Takashi Sato versus Brian Battle. Man, that could actually be a pretty good fight. I'm switching my pick. <laughs> I'm taking Takashi Sato and Brian Battle at plus 1,100. There you go. All right. Uh, last one here. Uh, who will record the fastest finish on the entire card? Terrence McKinney is currently sitting at plus 800. I'd probably take a shot on him because plus eight hundred. That's got to be a soft limit. I would think people go to the bank on that one. Like it's a. There are soft. You know what? Limits. In this yeah, game, yeah. And no, in this game, you never know because Terrence McKinney smokes him in two minutes, and somebody fractures their, you know, collarbone <laughs> in ninety seconds. So like, yeah, you know what? I, I I've been screwed on easier uh, layups than this one, but. Uh, the conventional thinking would be Terrence McKinney and the fact that it's plus 800 plus 900, like that's huge considering he's the runaway favorite for that category. So that would have to be my pick as well. Uh, I think another pick you could consider is Josh Quinlan at plus 1500. If he chin checks Jason way quickly, absolutely possible. 
And Michael Alexachuk as well. If he makes 85 yep. well, Sam Alvey's shot to bits at plus 1300. You'd be looking at a good price tag there as well. So, I mean, you got three front runners. I think McKinney, just the way he fights, is definitely the biggest one. But as I talked to you earlier in the show about, it's all about like mentality. If he wants the quick finish and he's dead set on the quick finish and he goes for it, yeah, we're looking good. If he decides, you know what, I'm a great wrestler and I can take my time and, you know, I can set things up, then yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe something else beats him to it. But yeah, plus 900 is just. Too good of a price tag considering what the guy traditionally does. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's move on to our three best prop pets. Then we'll get out of here so Cody can get into his breaking down the bees on, on, on PFL. We've had a couple more people in the live chat ask about it. He will be dropping it later this evening, so make sure you guys go check it out on his channel. All right, first best prop bet for me is going to be the Brian Battle via sub at plus 300. Got to take a shot there. I truly believe he's the overall better fighter here against Sato. Sato's only shot, in my opinion, is finding that knockout blow. I just think that battle is going to be too active for him on the feet. Eventually, he'll drag this fight to the ground, and I think a submission opportunity will eventually open itself up. Secondly, I'm going to go with the chalk here on the McKenny Gonzalez under one and a half at minus 250. Uh, again, the, these next two are going to be a little bit chalky, but I feel damn good about them. Again, the 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 facts behind McKenny's fights, 14 out of 16 fights have not seen the second round. 15 out of 16 of those fights have finished under one and a half. The, the other one uh, was a quick finish in the third round where he got a heel hook victory over his opponent. But I'm expecting him to either get that quick finish over Gonzalez or Gonzalez eventually finishes him later round one early round two, but I still like that under one and a half. And then lastly, I'm going to go with the Oleg Shajak Alvi fight. Does it go to decision at minus 175? I obviously like Oleg Shajak to go out there and get the finish himself, which is roughly around minus 110. And you guys will be hearing about that very soon. <laughs> or Alvi manages to hit that counter and uh, knocks out Oleg Shajak. You know, Oleg Shajak coming down a weight class could be a, a, an issue in terms of his durability. Uh, it's obviously in the running for battles durability as well, if you want to talk about that whole narrative. But I think that Alvi uh, could potentially land that, which I'd rather stay safer with the minus 175 on the total fight doesn't go to decision. All right, yourself. Pow, pow. Lex Chuck, my KO. Basically got the same thing as you, just a little bolder. You know, it didn't go in the distance. And hopefully the Polish man's getting his hand raised. I'm actually a big fan of Sam Alvey. Him and I shared a three-hour car ride one time from Medicine Hat to Calgary. Uh, super good dude. Him and Action Man, obviously good buddies back in the day. I just think that the writing's on the wall. He's got other things committed to it. His durability's in question. And for, you know, Lord Michael, the guy is a terror what he wants to be. So I think he gets back to his winning ways. Minus 115 in the KO. Sign me up. Uh, then we're going to go with Quinlan by KO. Of course, KO, TKO. It's all the same thing. But uh, yeah, I just think Jason Witt at this point, actually in this particular case, but the KO, because Witt doesn't get TKO'd. He goes all the way out. And that's just a problem. You know, the fight business is a, is, is a tough go. You've got to have durability. You've got to have a chin. It's the loneliest sport in the world. Try to be a, a, a professional prize fighter with no durability. And in Witt's case, the guy can wrestle. He's big. He's strong. He's physical. His cardio is not terrible, but I just feel like the lights are going to get uh, switched off from him. So hopefully Quinlan, no longer on the juice, training at the third best camp in Las Vegas, which is beyond my belief. But <laughs> what are you doing? Man, I don't, I don't want to overthink it. Quinlan puts him down. 125. Hook me up. And then we're going to go with Lipsky by decision, plus 140. 
not the sexy play. Well, actually, you know, maybe it is a sexy play. But in terms of like greasy, yeah, this is pretty greasy. It's women's MMA fight. It's going to be close. It's going to be 15 minutes. It's going to be back and forth. But I honestly think that since Lipsky's moved to American Top Team, physically much better shape. Her game's starting to come together. And with Cachoeira, there's a lot of glaring holes there. You just need someone that can go out, take advantage of it. So, you know, maybe she uses some grappling offensively, which you never see from her. Maybe she's just going to be able to be strong in the clinch and then keep her off bay. We just got to make sure that the, the significant numbers don't rack up down the stretch because of course Cachoeira plods forward and just throws caution to the wind but she should have lost that Kim fight and she's going to lose this fight so I got to go with Ariana Lipsky to uh, right the ship 140 last week two for three so close Michael Morales late TKO baby pulls it out for us yeah Drakkar close by decision nice goes out there gets the job done and then uh, I had Ankalaya versus Anthony Smith going the distance. When it ended, I was like, God damn, Smith really let me down. I thought he'd fight a little more, but dude shatters his legs. So that's the other part of betting sports, unfortunately, is you're going to get some crazy bounces like that, and things do happen. So I'm not upset about it. It was a good week last week. Hopefully we can do the exact same thing this time around and cash a couple tickets. Yeah, I went all of three on my best prop bets last week. You went two of three, so you made up for my lack of uh, props last week. Hopefully we can both get some uh, props on the board this week. Uh, Cody. Uh, I'll give you the platform one last time, my friend. Anything you want to say to the viewers before we get out of here? You know what? Normally, I would give you some PFL plays right now, real quick. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take like a ten minute break, have a beer or some, and then uh, and then shoot for that. And so the post limbs look pretty good, the prelims look pretty good, the main card looks pretty good. There's a lot of good betting opportunities. And of course, two weeks ago we had some Bellator, we had some UFC, we tried some crossover stuff. Worked out for the most part. Yeah, I think we do the same thing this weekend. The UFC card looks spotty. Some good fights, some good spots. But 13 fights, there's going to be some stuff that falls by the wayside. And for the PFL card, some of them you don't want to put no money on. It's PFL. But there's also a couple decent spots as well that I think if you put the right combination together, it could be good and profitable. So if you need anything, hit me on Twitter at CJ Safdick, uh, the channel CJMMA on, on, on YouTube. And of course, all the support is always much appreciated. So thanks to all the live viewers. Thanks for all the people that did take the time to hit like or subscribe. And of course, the comment section. I mean, we got a lot of good intercourse. I was going to say intercourse. Discourse. We got a lot of, hey, got a lot oh, of good hey. little... Hey, ooh, 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 I don't know what's going on in the comment section. My wife's in the other room, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine too. I gotta go. So we'll catch you guys the next time. If you're into PFL stuff, check the channel out in a few hours. Exactly. All right, make sure you guys go check out Cody's PFL breakdown coming out very shortly. Appreciate everybody that was banging with us on this Thursday afternoon. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. I will be back for the Ultimate Way-In Show tomorrow. Make sure you guys come out for that as well. Good luck on your bets this week, and uh, we'll see you guys again next week for UFC San Diego. Cannot wait to hear Cody's thoughts on that main event between Marlon Vera and Dominic Cruz, but we'll be breaking all that down for you guys next week. See you guys then. Peace out.